What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. My guest for this episode is David Williamson. David is one of the funniest and most skilled magicians working close up and on stage in the business. He's performed all over the world in The Illusionists, Circus 1903, and he's appeared on numerous TV specials. It would take far too long to list his accomplishments and accolades, so suffice it to say, he's one of the best in the world. In the episode, we talk about his humble beginnings in Ohio, the blue-collar show business path he was drawn to, and how he transformed from the shy, quiet kid into the outrageous powerhouse that steals the show. David is humble and introspective in this episode, and I know you'll love listening to our conversation. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast. If you want to learn some of David's powerful routines, head over to artofmagic.com and check out his artist page. Art of Magic is the premier destination for learning the fundamentals of sleight of hand technique, as well as some of the most advanced magical applications of dexterity in the world. While you're at it, you'll probably need a deck of cards or two, so head over to artofplay.com to get what you need. Art of Play also provides a curated collection of games, puzzles, and other amusements which offer epiphanies for the curious mind. Anyway, get into the episode. David was so humble and so generous and wonderful, and it is an amazing episode, and it was an honor to talk to him. If you have any magic-related questions or comments on the show, let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com, or you can reach out to my personal email, which is me at elliotterrell.com. Three T's in the center. Anyway, this is David Williamson. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. And go. Action. <laughs> How long have you lived out here? Uh, about... I've lived in L.A. for a little over a year. A year and a month. Where'd you come so. from? I was in Louisiana first, but I moved to San Diego after college. Okay. Yeah. How'd you get into magic? <laughs> Are you interviewing me? Mm-hmm. That's fine. I don't know much about you. Uh, I got into magic. I don't know anything about you. No, I know. It's great. I know you do this podcast. Yeah. And you run the uh, Art of Magic site. Not anymore. Ah. Since January, yeah. I'm oh. freelance. I'm doing other things now. Okay. What kind of other things? Um, <laughs> right now I'm editing a memoir for someone and I'm working on um, another weird thing. I don't know. We'll get into that later. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, but I got into magic when I was a kid. I uh, I was really into speed solving Rubik's cubes, which I learned around. I learned how to do that at Boy Scout camp. I was sitting up around the campfire. One of the older scouts had gotten really into it, and so he taught me how to do it. And and that was interesting and mechanical. And then I learned a card trick and showed it to a magician. He was like, "That's pretty good, but it's old." And I was like, "Fuck you." <laughs> Because I didn't know anything. Yeah. Uh, he's like, but that's good. You should you should really dive into it. And so I did and then was hooked. <clears throat> and that's how I got into it. Wow. Yeah. Who are some of the guys you hung out with? Nobody. Oh. Yeah, wow. when I was in Louisiana, there weren't any magicians sure. around me. Where in Louisiana? North Louisiana. So I wasn't close to New Orleans, oh, which man. would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I learned most of what I knew from ordering things online, whether it be books or buying DVDs and things like that. And I think it was nice that I didn't have 
bad examples around me yep. because then I'd read the book and yep. I'd imagine this has to That's be exactly invisible, right. you know? Yeah. And then you have this, this idea of what it's supposed to be yeah, in your head. That was the same for me. I lived in Zine, Ohio, no magicians anywhere near. Yeah. So I just, it was me and Henry Hay and, you know, <laughs> amateur magician's handbook yeah. and you had to imagine what it looked like. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great book. I love that there aren't many illustrations in it because then exactly. you really do have to just... The other thing I liked about it was he talked a little bit about his childhood and going around and meeting his heroes and, you know, and uh, the reverence he had, you know, yeah. for the art. Like he had to travel and he had to learn secrets and he got, you know, he felt like there's a club out there and far flung, but everybody's a member, and, you know. So when you're 12 reading this, you kind of gives you a little overview of the world of magic, not just how the tricks are done. You know? Yeah. And and he he puts such an importance on, like the performance aspect of it too, which he had reverence for these great artists, Alan Shaw and T. Nelson Downs and John Mulholland and people like that, you know. Yeah. Vernon, even you know. So how did you get into it? I'm trying to think if I can remember my earliest memory of how I got into it. Oh, I know what it is. Yeah. Continue. Oh. We're already doing it. Oh, uh, yeah. We're just in it. <laughs> my uh, fourth grade teacher, we had a little reader in fourth grade. Mrs. Moore was my teacher. And uh, it was a little story about Houdini, like a very simple story about Houdini. And at the end, they taught a French drop. And I learned it, and I did it better than any other kids. And Mrs. Moore said, oh, that's good, David. Maybe someday you'll be a magician. And the neural pathway, I could feel it being burnt because that's the first time anybody pointed to me and go, you'll be a... Yeah. Because, you know, as a kid, I didn't know. You know you'll be a magician. Oh, that's a... <laughs> that burnt in there. Yeah. Later that year, uh, Shepard the Great, Walt Shepard, a local school magician, came to the, our school, Spring Hill Elementary in Xenia, and did his show. I was so excited. The posters, and he had a van with rabbits painted on it and hats, top hats and stuff. And Mrs. Moore saw that, and she talked to Shepard, and she goes, well, our little magician here, can he help you carry your props in and out at the end of the show? This woman is a her? saint. And that just, and he was, you know, and I'm his little help, helped him carry his painted doves out to the van and bring them back in. And uh, I was in the club, you know? So all, that just, it just stuck to me. And then I got Boy's Life, and they had little magic ads in the back. And my mom ordered me a Flosso Hornman catalog, excuse me, catalog, and some other magic. I got a Tannins catalog at one point as I got older. I found Amateur Magician's Handbook and a few other uh, Encyclopedia of Card Tricks at the Green County Library, which I never returned. You know, I have them to this day. And uh, so it was just my thing. Then I was 13, my mom uh, found out about colon mm -hmm. and drove me and another kid from Cincinnati a friend of hers had a son who was into magic I didn't even know this kid she drove us up to colon the pup tent dropped us off in the dairy field and took off for she was a hippie mom you know she, yeah and uh dropped us off at the age 13 with a pup tent and said I'll be back uh, she visited her sister in Wisconsin wow see you on Tuesday or something like that <laughs> And uh, it was the greatest weekend of my life. Yeah. I followed Tim Wright. Tim Wright was 16. And uh, Malika was there. And just all the great old guys, you know. And uh, 
that was the great. And we did magic tricks by Lan Coleman Lantern. The guys were showing me magic tricks. And I told this story at Magic Live, too. And this is when I broke into tears because uh, that night, one of the nights, we didn't know what we were doing. We put our pup tent at the bottom of a valley. <laughs> and the it rained and all our stuff was flooded. Everything was ruined. I bought a bunch of books mm -hmm. and props and stuff. And it was all ruined. And somebody in a Mercedes-Benz, that's all I remember. He was a mentalist. He was one of the guys camping out because people had their RVs and cars parked in the field. That was uh -huh. the campground. He backed his car into the flooded area, saved all of our stuff, and everything that was ruined, all the books that were ruined, he bought, rebought duplicates for us wow. and replaced them. Some kindly, I don't remember to this day who it was. But that really stuck with me. It's like, wow, there's a community of people who take care of each other, fraternity, you know, and... Mm -hmm. It was like, that was a very important moment, you know, for me, you know, to see that, what that guy did for us. I was like, who does that? Because in my walking around life, I didn't see examples of that kind of behavior. Sure. You know what I mean? Growing up in my neighborhood and stuff. So that was really cool. So I went back to Abbott's a lot after that. And, and then I met, I was about, I think it might have been that same year, I was doing three-card Monty at the candy counter at the little, little five and dime, trying to hustle the girls out of candy, you know, and that's because... <laughs> And I was a mess when I was young. I was like a little juvenile delinquent. And uh, <laughs> Where did that come from? Uh, you know, a year earlier, a tornado had come through our town. I just ran. I had two brothers. My parents were divorced. And uh, I was just running around like a wild, feral child around our town. A tornado tore our town apart. And so we would loot old buildings and start fires. And I, just, I hung out with the wrong crowd. And, yeah. You know, I was just a mess. I was kind of aimless. And... Uh, but magic was my thing. Yeah. Magic was my, you know, like when had magic and that was my thing. But this woman was watching me do three card Monty trying to hustle candy from a car, and she grabbed me by the scruff of the neck basically. And she goes, That's not what magic is for. And she and her husband were amateur magicians who lived in my little town. I didn't know anything about them. He had a little mail order magic shop. And they would go every they're members of the Ring Five Magic Club in Dayton, Ohio, which was half an hour away from my little town. So they started driving me every week. She could see that I had some chops and liked magic. So they did kid shows and sold magic tricks. They drove me to Ring 5. I met the larger community of magicians. It was in the basement of the Catholic Church on the first Friday of every month in Dayton. And here's these mailmen and a cop and a dentist and people. And some of them had great collections of books. And they and it blew my mind. Yeah. That these people just came out of the woodwork once a month. And they knew so much about magic. And there were a couple of them who were pretty good told me about people like Derek Dingle and, you know, Vernon. And, and that's when uh, Henning was big on TV and David uh -huh. Copperfield was coming along. And and Mark Wilson was my hero on TV. and and uh, But then, then I'd hear words like Marlowe and things like that. And I really got interested in the close-up and slide of hand because there were a couple guys in the clubs who go, don't mess with that stuff. Here's what you want to. Oh, yeah. And they saw that I had a basic understanding of sleight of hand through the books that I've been And the isolation we talked about. Yep. Because I didn't have a lot of bad examples. So it was, I looked into some good stuff early on before I met some other magicians. And they could see that, okay, you're on that road. Let's let's nurture that. And I kind of gravitated towards a couple a couple of the dentists, actually, were close-up fans. And, and then people started coming through and lecturing. And by the time I was 15, John Carney came to Ring 5. He was 18. Rocked my world, you know. It was so natural. I didn't know what was going on. Daryl mm -hmm. came through. And uh, and the other old pros uh, came through. And I met Michael Amar, a little convention up north of me when I was 17. And Gary Plants. And just started, you know, my circle expanded. My dad used to 
had a brother in Texas, so he'd drive to Texas every year and drop me off the TAOM. And I would hang out the TAOM. I met Roger Klaus and Frank Price and all the Texas mafia there. And, and uh, you know, and then my mom would put me on Greyhound buses and send me off to Greenboro, North Carolina or Kansas City or Philadelphia or whatever. And uh, I would stay with the organizers of whatever convention. And I would wake up in the morning and I'd be sitting at the breakfast table in the organizer's house with uh, <coughs> Del Rey and Slidini oh and God. Goshman and... Uh, <coughs> Uh, oh, I might think of his name. Um, Zone Zero, Panoramic Shift uh, from Oregon, Optical Illusion guy. Who am I thinking of? Jerry Andrus. Jerry Andrus, yeah. I love Jerry Andrus. And uh, so all the old guys. I gravitate toward these old guys. I used to, and then I found out that Magi Fest was an hour away from me, up in Columbus. Yeah. So I made the trek up there every winter in the horrible weather. And I'd sit there and follow Goshman around from table to table every year. And I became... The skinny kid who would just follow God. I was like, you know how those some sucker fish around a shark, they're <laughs> yep. just always there, yep. you know, eating the little plankton off of the back or whatever they do. That was me with Goshman. I was fascinated by his rude <laughs> demeanor off stage and his charming demeanor on, you know, when he was working and his sleight of hand. And so I was back then. They had hallways at the Magi Fest in the good old days, and each dealer had a bedroom. They'd uh -huh. take the mattresses and push them up against the wall and put a little table in there. And each bedroom along the hallway of a hotel was a different dealer's room. Oh, wow. a dealer's hall. And it was great because the hallway became the social corridor. And you'd stand on either side facing each other so people could walk behind, past you. You know, it was very, not a lot of room, but it was almost like a gauntlet. You had to walk <laughs> through all these magicians doing card tricks and talking and stuff and go into the dealer's room. But I always stood outside Goshman's room because every once in a while I'd go, Get me a Coke! And he knew he was yelling at me. You yeah. know what I mean? So I'd have to run, and five minutes later, he'd get a Coke. Or, tell Paul Diamond I need to talk to you, or something like that. And I'd yeah. go down to Paul Diamond's room and go, Mr. Gashman, well, tell him I'm busy. And then Paul Diamond would yell at me, and I'd break the <laughs> Go back to Gashman. So I was that guy. And I loved Carol Fox and Jay Marshall. And I somehow got in the room with these guys. I'd just sit there quietly and just laugh and listen to their stories and watch them tell, you know, stuff. And it was just, over the years, I kind of... Uh, you know, soaked all that in, yeah. that atmosphere and these great guys. And I was just telling Mike uh, that Roger Klaus, because uh, a guy came up to me at the Magic Castle last night and he was in his, I think he was, said he was 40 years old or something or 35 or from Canada. He goes, I just want to come over and tell you that uh, 30 years, because I'm 57 now. So he goes, 30 years ago, I was 14 years old and, uh, at a convention, and I stopped him. I go, did I treat you badly? He goes, no, no, no. <laughs> he goes, but you, and he told me some ridiculous thing I did to him, you know, yeah. and then he remembered it, and he loved it. Now, you know, but it was, you know. And that's what these guys would do to me. First time I met Roger Klaus, I was 15. I was at the TAOM in Houston or Dallas or somewhere. And he's sitting there with his buddies. And I had a brand new deck of, I remember, they were... Um, uh, aristocrat playing cards because uh -huh. that's what uh, some of the guys had in Stars of Magic so I thought I should be using aristocrats you yep. know? and I loved them and I brand new pack because one of the dealers was selling them I couldn't find them in Ohio and uh, 
He goes, oh, is that a new pack of cards there, son? He sees, you know, I'm standing on the edge just watching him talk to whoever, Scotty or whoever he's talking to. I go, yes, sir. Well, here, let me show you a trick, young man. And he took him and he had me pick a card, put it back in the deck. And he goes, now, this one's called the rising card. And he looked around, he grabs the glass, he sticks the deck in the glass, but it's full of beer. <laughs> and he goes, oh, whoops. And, of course, it's absorbing the beer like a sponge, oh. ruined the deck. Ah, He goes, damn it. Hey, kid, go get me another beer. And I had to go somehow, 15 years old, go it's get him so another good. beer. It was just so mean. And they're all <laughs> laughing while I'm slinking off almost in tears. Yeah, of course. I cherish that memory, right? So at conventions over the years, that's how I treat young guys. You yeah. know, here, you know, give me that. And tell your mom I need money. Yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> grab my and, just treat, and now they now it's paying back because they're coming back to me. Go, you stuck me under a banquet table when I was 13 and told me to stay there for half an hour for a train. And I came out. Nobody was, in, you know, just things like that. So it's all coming back to haunt me. But hopefully it's good memories for these guys because they're great memories for me. You yeah. know, I just kind of pass it on at <laughs> these conventions because that's what made it fun for me. These old men, my dad's age, acting like teenagers, yes. basically. Yeah. You know, and I love that about them. That's my favorite thing. Like, that's what I love about Pebble, which was, you yeah. know, you were there last year. And yeah. it's just like, we're just having a party and oh, yeah. everybody's on the same playing field. Absolutely, and it's just, yeah. there's so much camaraderie and goofy nonsense. This guy's a federal gu- judge. This guy is yeah. an executive of a bank. This guy's a skateboard punk. This guy is, you know, basically homeless, but it doesn't matter. They're sitting around the table and they're all on the same yeah. plane. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, so <laughs> was there. Because I, I think Gary Plants told me that there was, and I think it may have been at Magi Fest, and I'm probably getting all of this wrong, but I, he said something to me like, David was the shy kid that hung around and didn't say anything, and then one year he just was David yeah. Williamson. Yeah. What? it To these guys it seemed like that, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. Because they would, you know took a year or two for me to come out of my shell. But yeah. yes, I was always very, and I've told this story before, but I looked up to guys like, uh, like I remember looking at the Linking Ring after Paul Gertner won the close-up competition at the IBM, uh-huh. the cover of Linking Ring, because I got Linking Ring magazine at that point. And he was, had a suit. He was a young man, like 21 or something like that. A tie, cufflinks, maybe a tie pin or something, you know. His cards fanned out in front of him at a table, his cups and the coin, all the props. And it was like, there's a serious guy who's taking it seriously. And all my heroes, John Carney and and Michael Lamar and all my contemporaries at that point were very serious students of the art. You know, it wasn't just playtime for them. It was, they took a deep dive as young men, you know. And I go, well, that's what I want to be. I want to be, these were my examples, you know. And and all the people I met, so I was very serious about it. And the books I would read were, you know, read a book, and uh, I didn't have any examples of guys my age. Daryl brought a lot of uh, personality and comedy into his close up, but but still, it was very serious magic. It was about the magic, you know, and he yeah. had quirky, infectious humor around it, but the magic was still. And again, you only see this in the bubble of magic conventions. It wasn't like I was going out watching people do gigs. Yeah, at that point in my life, too much. But uh, anyway, so I anyway I was took it very seriously in my first jobs. I wanted to be, you know, and I saw Lance Burton when I was young on stage, and I go, I want to be that guy, of, but close up. I want to be the Lance Burton of the 
Denny's or whatever restaurant I was working, table hopping. Yep, you know yep. what I mean? So I wore a tuxedo and I was wanted people to appreciate all the skill and the hard work and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was lacking something. It was lacking entertainment value, <laughs> you know, other than the entertainment value that comes out of the tricks. But I, you know, treat each magic trick with respect and stuff. And uh, I don't know what flipped the switch uh, for me where these guys noticed what is going on. And I think it, it was about the same time that, uh, you know, I was table hopping and I was in college and I wasn't taking college very seriously, but I got married very young. I was 20. Marsha was 19. Got our own apartment. We had bills. We had no money. We were both dirt poor. So I was relying on these tips of these gigs, you know, and... Uh, so I was like, I'm not making any money, and I wasn't having fun. And I took a little lecture tour with a buddy of mine, Bruce Allen, this really talented magician from Dayton. We hit a few cities down south. We stopped at Atlanta with the tomfoolery, and that changed my life. Yeah, I watched Tom in that bar, and I never laughed so hard and so such powerful magic like that in combination. I couldn't breathe. And it was like, I described it like being in the ring with Tyson. You know, it's just knockout punch after knockout punch after knockout punch. And I go, oh, he's doing great magic, but look at this crowd. They're just going crazy and having fun and laughing. Offstage, I was a big goofball. My brothers and I were always horsing around and goofing around and stuff. But I had put magic in such a special place, I didn't let those two parts of my life interact. Yeah. You know? But... I saw Mollica and I saw, oh, I now have permission to do act like that and the magic can still be strong, you know. So I think that was probably around the turning point when I was needed something else to keep me in magic, at least for a living, you know, and, the, and he showed me the way, you know. So after that, I go, oh, okay, well, anybody can do a 4 ace trick, but most people won't jump up on the table and put the tablecloth on like a cape and then give this guy a wedgie during the 4 H trick, you know, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then they, it was so ridiculous. Now half the guys were like, I liked you better when you were a serious magician. <laughs> but the other, and the organizers were like, you're welcome anytime at my, con-. I started getting a lot of convention bookings. Yeah. It's like, we got a million guys who can do card tricks from beginning A to Z without, you know, but not many people are doing what you're doing out there in magic conventions. So that became my persona in the magic world. Yeah. Now, in my shows, it didn't always translate. I wasn't doing that necessarily, but I did start having more fun at the tables, at the dinner theaters I was working at and table hopping and letting that side of me leak in more. So that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but to my friends at the magic conventions, it was like overnight. But it was over the course of a couple of years. Sure. I started to kind of figure out what was going on, how I could make a living with this. Because when I started having fun and doing a little bit of that crazy stuff and, you know, let my id and ego or id out a little bit in the, my tips, my tip jar got bigger. And I realized, oh, it's not about the magic. It's about having a good time, making sure these people have a good time. And I still feel that way. And that's what the corporate magic. So there were two paths I perceived. Comedy clubs like Matt King and Michael Finney and the guys I knew who were doing comedy clubs, that was the shortcut to fame and fortune because producers see you and you maybe get a TV spot and that's for a showcase, for showbiz. But then there's the corporate route, which I saw Paul Gertner and people like Bill Hurst. They'll never be rich and famous, 
but they will make a decent living. They can raise a family, have a semi-normal life. And like just from watching guys like Carol Fox and, and Jay Marshall and all those guys, I saw from early on that you can make a living being a magician. And the guys parking their Winnebago's and Shepard the Magician, it's like blue-collar showbiz. It's not real showbiz like Copperfield and Henning, but it's this other layer of showbiz where workmen, and I call it because my dad was a farmer and factory worker, blue-collar guy, worked hard, made a living, kept his family afloat, you know. And uh, that's what I, I, those are my heroes, those guys who could uh, figure out how to keep going, how to make a living, weren't reaching for the stars. And uh, it was almost like a middle road, you know. It's like, for some reason, I gravitated towards that and I kind of rejected the whole notion of, I didn't, wasn't in magic to be a superstar to make lots of money. That wasn't the whole point to me. It's like, you can make a living because my dad was so proud of me. He's like, my son makes a living doing card tricks. Yeah. You know, and I was lucky that he had that attitude because he was the hardest working person I've ever met in my life. I mean, he was up early, worked the farm, then go work a couple factories, come back and put the, you know, work the farm some more. And, and he loved the fact that I could go out and make people laugh and do some card tricks and still pay my rent. You know, he thought that was awesome. So I, my, both my parents were very supportive. I forget what my point was. But anyway, <laughs> there we are. <laughs> I talk and then I, I lose track. What was I talking about? I don't remember. <laughs> You're just letting me ramble, aren't you? You're not yeah. going to throw me any rope here? No. Okay. I I think that's amazing. And I've been very fortunate that my parents were supportive, too. Yeah. Uh, not as much me moving to California. <laughs> oh, really? My dad is. My dad's a free spirit. My mom's like, you're my baby. Stay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I understand that. But but they're very uh, happy and proud. And, and it's there's a freedom in that, for sure, because, like... It's not it's not comfort in a in an apathetic way, but like you have a confidence that your parents are behind you and you can go out and you can do the thing that you love and, yeah. and you know yeah. make your no, my parents were always supportive, but they weren't really helicopter parents at all. They had their own worries, you know. Yeah. So I was I was pretty independent from early on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was very I always made I was a shoe shine boy at twelve. I was always looking for ways to make a buck. I was always hustling this or that and mowing lawns and so I was not a lazy kid, <clears throat> but magic, you know, I put all my energy in magic. And uh, it was Darwin Ortiz who s set me aside. I loved him. He came through and lectured Ring 5, and I was very impressed with him. All these guys left their mark on me. You know, I saw David Roth. I wanted to be like David Roth. I saw Darwin Ortiz. I wanted to be like that. I saw Michael Amart. I wanted to be. I saw Daryl. I wanted to be like Daryl. John Carney. I wanted to be like John Carney. Paul Gertner, all these guys. And... Uh, but Darwin saw me at a magic convention early on. I think it was at the TAOM. <clears throat> and nobody had ever done this. He took me aside and he goes, okay, it's one thing to be the flavor of the month at the magic convention and, you know, pop along from, you know, be in the magazines. And he goes, but at some point, you have to figure out how you're going to make a living doing this. And you owe it to your parents, your mom and your dad. You owe them. Get serious, make a plan, figure out how you're going to make a living. Yeah. And I was like, my first, my back went up. I was like, who's this guy? I think he has talked to me like this about my parents, what I owe them. But uh, it sunk in, and I thank him for that. Yeah. He And, and I started getting serious. I was like, yeah, he's right. I got to, I can't just, it's not all playtime, you know, it's just show business, you know. Yeah. I got to figure that out. <laughs> so there was, it sounded like you were, because you were, um, you know, independent from a young age and then, 
and then Darwin took you aside, you had a, like a self-awareness about you that I think a lot of magicians lack. Um, how did, how did that affect you being in front of an audience? Well, I knew from age 10 that I needed to be in front of people and I was going to be a professional. I turned to my mom when I was 10 or 11 and <clears throat> said, I'm going to be a professional magician. Don't worry about me. Worry about my younger brother, Gary, and my older brother, Bobby, who didn't seem to have any direction. Yeah. And that's at 11. Yeah. I was talking to her like that. You know, I go, I'm fine. I know what I, I know my path. I know what, my reason for living on this earth and I know what I'm doing. And that's, and to this day, I still feel that way. It's like, that's, it's weird that that was my all-consuming that's all I care about and uh, she said okay you know and at the age and I was super shy as a kid but Henry Hay and others people I read told me that it's not meant for practicing in the bedroom this is meant for putting it's not magic until a brain processes an outside a human brain it happens in their brain it doesn't happen in your bedroom there's no magic in your bedroom yeah. magic happens in their brain when they're watching you. And if all those Flossel Hornman catalogs and Tannins catalogs had illustrations of guys on nightclub stages and audiences clapping and laughing. You see the tops of their heads, you know, in their shoulders from behind when their hands in the air clapping. And there's the guy on stage. Like, okay, there's an audience. I need an audience. <clears throat> so when I was 14, I said, okay, mom, there's a bar in Dayton. I heard about it's have an open mic night. It's a country western cowboy bar. And that's the only way I could figure out how to get in front of... And I was shy. I yeah. could, didn't know how to talk to people. But I was compelled. And my parents thought, really? Are you sure you want to do this? Day? But I go, where else am I going to find an audience? You know. So she used to drive me to this country. And I'd get up there and do billiard balls and zombie or whatever, card yeah. trick or something. It was awful. And people didn't know what was going on. But I was, I mean, it was just like... I have to do this, you know, because yeah. this is part of the thing. And then uh, she knew a woman who was a belly dancer, gave a belly dance class at the community center. And this woman put together a troupe of belly dancers there in, Sp in Springfield, Ohio, down the road from us. And she worked these truck stops along Route 70 at these lounges. And they do their Seven Veils belly dance show. And... I dressed up like a genie and I'd run around between their dances and do close up magic at the tables. And my mom had to go because I was underage and it was in these bars. So yeah. every Thursday night, my mom would drive me to these bars and sit there, you know, while I'm running around with these <laughs> belly dancers and doing magic for these drunk truckers who could give a shit about, you know, they thought it was a hoochie show. It wasn't a yeah. belly dance show. You know, it was weird, but I was compelled to do these things. Yeah. I needed an audience, you know. So yeah, that was it. I just forced myself to do it. I always I had a T-shirt said "Magician for Hire," and I was always at the county fair, the barber shop where I used to cut hair and shine shoes. Or I didn't cut hair; I shine shoes and sweep up hair. But I'd stand on the sidewalk out with my little table and Xenia during any festival or fair or something like that, and do magic, you know. And I was always putting myself out there, birthday parties, old folks' homes, all all the stuff. Yeah, yeah, anything to get in front of people. Clock a lot of hours in front of lay audiences. And the other thing I tell people that they need, young magicians, I say you need mean siblings or a mean boyfriend or girlfriend who will be brutally honest. And my brothers were very mean. I saw it. 
It's in your other hand. That looks like what tooth cards you turned over. <clears throat> you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So it's like, okay, now how am I going to fool these guys, you know? So it becomes psychological. I learn not to raise my shoulder up or I learn to come not look at that, you know, and you can't blink at the thing. And it, it was a great training ground for subversive psychological warfare. <laughs> you know, and my wife, too, she was, we were, I've known Marsha since we were both 14 in middle school, we, you know, high school sweethearts. So she knows every tick, everything. So to fool her, I, you got to take a deep dive, you know, yeah. you got to plan way ahead and, and so that's what it was like, you know, with my brothers and Marsha giving me that, you know, and then the real people out in the real world who could give a shit about, you know, certain esoteric John Hammond routines, yeah. like sponge balls, they react to that. And so you're putting all this in the mix and you're trying to come up with some sort of entertainment that's going to make you money. You know, I still want the magic to be good. I still want to do things that interest me, but I want to serve the audience and get some reactions and make some money. And so that all goes in the mix. And, uh, and you're not going to plan this from your bedroom. You've got to go out in the real world. And it shaves off so many unnecessary things. You know, it's like a, it's like a dolphin. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like a dolphin. There's no wasted space. It's all sleek, you know. And you go out in the world and, and you find out within 20 minutes. I, worked, I was lucky enough to work at a dinner theater. Which means it's all compressed time. Working at a restaurant, you stroll around and do tables and that's fine. But at the dinner theater, people come to be entertained... But you only have like an hour, 90 minutes, and there's 300 guests. And so that means I forget how many tables that translated into, about 60 tables or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, you, and so I got to go table to table and run around. And, and you do the same routine the 30 times a night, you know, or more. But within the first five tables, you realize that this is extraneous. That's wasted. They're not responding to this. So by the end of the night, it's already evolved you know yeah quite a bit and by the end of a six-week run or something like that of whatever play is on stage because i would try to change material up every because the same audience would come back for the new play and i didn't want to have new tricks you know what i mean so a dinner theater and we had one in ohio there was a great training ground for me it's like graduate school you know it was a very ex great experimental lab you know because of the turnover of the people and turnover the tables turnover the shows and eventually they let me get up on stage and give the announcements like, oh, our Chuck Wilkin buffet is opening <coughs> over here, and da da da. And I give the announcements. The exits are here, here, and then I let me do one magic trick. So I got my, you know, got a little stand up. So I do a new trick each before each play. And then the other lesson I learned, I'm gonna take a drink of water. <clears throat> Been working at the castle all week. I been yelling a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we chose not to wear mics in the pillar, so I'm just screaming, losing my voice. But uh, uh, the other lesson you learned, the other lesson I learned was watching these actors on stage and how they took a script and turned it into a living, breathing thing that the audience would respond to in real time. You know, and there was a great old character actor. His name was Eddie Bracken. And if you've ever seen the original National Lampoon show movie, mm -hmm. Chevy Chase, uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. They finally get the Wally world, and the owner is this kindly old man, and that's Eddie Bracken. Oh, wow. And he used to be in movies with Marilyn Monroe back in the 50s and 60s and 40s and stuff. Great old character actor. And before that, he was in like a vaudeville hoofer or something like that. So he's got a huge bag of tricks, you know, for uh, entertaining. And so he was in this play, kind of a dumb bedroom comedy, at this dinner theater in Ohio. And... uh 
things like uh, the phone would ring and he'd pick it up and he'd go, hello. And the phone would ring again because the sound man, you know, he picked it up too early or something like that. <laughs> and he'd look at the other actor on stage and the other, and the other guy's about to bust up and he's trying not to bust up. And he's like, put, and he said, you know, he had some little aside, like, I don't, you know, well, I guess we forgot to pay the bill or something. Every time he walked by the phone during the play, he'd stop and he'd pick it up and check. He had all these great little bits. And I was like, this guy's an improvisational genius. He turned it, it was hilarious. The next night he did the same thing. Same thing. He brought that bit with him. Yeah. It was in his pocket. I didn't know that. Fooled me. I thought, I'm so glad I was here this night to see this amazing yes. thing that happened. But he had a million of those to take, just picking up, a, writing something down on a piece of paper and putting it down. He just had trouble with the pen or something. And people were paying attention to every movie made. And it just felt like those people were lucky that they were there that night and saw that little mishap and that. And he trained the other actors to work with him on this stuff. And boy, that was great. How to make this stuff fresh and be in the moment, make people, he's present, you know. <clears throat> that was a good lesson to learn. That's incredible. Not to do canned stuff. Yeah. And to listen to the audience. So I learned things like that. So one night I'm doing Professor's Nightmare. I toss the short rope out, toss the medium-sized rope out, toss along, and I hit the standard canned lines, you know, toss it back to me on the count of three, you know, whatever it was, whatever yeah. I've seen other magicians do. Somebody tossed the rope back to me, and it was tied in a noose. And I stood there and looked at it, and I'm thinking about all the shit. i got to untie this noose. I'm going to not be able to do this line. And now the timing thing. And I'm looking at it, and I had nothing to say. I almost did a real double take. And then something in my brain goes, hey, stupid, listen to the audience. And they were laughing harder than they've ever laughed at anything I've ever done. Because I'm perplexed by this noose and ang actually angry yeah. at the guy. Like, who does that? I yeah. said to him. And I was pissed. Audience is howling, you know. And luckily, some of my brain woke up and go, listen. Snap back. <laughs> yeah. And I went, oh, my God. So every night after that, I planted a noose. I would never thought of a, a noose would be funny. Yeah. It went stupid somehow. So that taught me to listen to the audience. And I taught, I planted a noose every night at this table. I learned to just look at it, act mad, shut up, and let the laughs roll in. And then you start finding a character. You know what I mean? And, <clears throat> so little things like that. What what character developed out of those bits? All of those. Well, things I realized together. that it, you know uh, the magician in trouble is a great premise because uh, it's real. You know, and like I say in my lectures, what we think the audience is thinking and what they're really thinking are two different things. In a card trick, if you go. Shuffle the deck as much as you like. Take any card you wish. Remember it. Put it back anywhere you like. Shuffle them up some more. Wouldn't you be amazed if I could find your card? And they're going, no. I'm not going to be amazed. You're so cocky. You're so confident. You shuffle them up as much. You put it in. You're so confident. Obviously, you're going to find it. I'll be amazed if you don't find my card. Which is the opposite mm -hmm. of what we want. Right? Because we're making everything so fair and I have no idea. It's like a used car salesman told me that this car is the greatest car. You're a used car salesman. I know you're lying. Yeah. You're a magician. I know you're lying. So if you say shuffle the cards as much as you like, that's enough. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And they're going, oh no. No, you said I could shuffle and you're going, great. Thanks a lot. I'll do a different trick. You know, and they laugh. And they're like, eh, one for me, you know. Yeah. And you're not take any card. Just, Oops, no, no, you were, I wouldn't, ah, eh, crap, you know. 
jeez. Oh, and you start acting like, and now put it back anywhere. Oh, uh, forget it. You know, they put it back in the wrong spot. And go ahead and shuffle them again because I'm doing a rope trick now, you know, and they think <laughs> it's funny. And, the, and now they will be amazed because they shuffled them too much. They took the wrong card. They put it back at the spot and they shuffle them again and they even gave it a cut. And you're like, I give up. <laughs> you know, and if your acting is good, You've lead, you lead them down this garden path. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about psychological warfare. I learned that stuff from my brothers, you know. Yeah. Don't throw me in the briar patch. Don't throw me in the briar patch. You know? <laughs> uh, but so, yeah. And then character comes out of that situation, you know. Because the smooth, confident, uh, sleight of hand star wasn't cut because mm -hmm. they couldn't relate to that, you know. Especially, see, close-up magic is different from stage and theatrical magic. I, I had it all wrong when I was young. I walk up and I do a spring from hand to hand. Hello, I'm the magician, you know, I do a couple of fan, pressure fan or something like that. And this guy sitting there with his girlfriend, I'm thinking I'm going to impress the girl and the guy will love that, that he's got brought his wife to it and I'll get a big tip. And the guy's like going, this guy's peacocking in front of my girlfriend trying to steal her and he's getting all primal, like meat, a piece of meat, you know, yeah. hates me. He's yeah. all intimidated, you know. But if I walk up and I go, hi, I'm the, and they fall on the ground, oops, sorry, would you like that? I'm not, ooh, uh, wait a minute. And they go, oh, this guy's an idiot. Yeah, show us a trick. Now it's all about status. Yeah. See, when I would come up with my status higher than them, if I'm dressed too, too good and I'm too slick, they're not going to relate, especially in the Midwest Ohio. They're going to relate, relate to that. But if I come up and I'm this kind of gawky, kind of a little bit, you know, somebody they can manage. <clears throat> and that's why in my lecture I always say, uh, you know, something my uncle told me years ago, only give him 40%. I didn't know what he's talking about. But it's true. You know, don't show them all your skills. You don't walk up. And I tell young kids at the magic convention, don't uh, walk into the convention and goes, here's my pass. Here's my diagonal palm shift. Here's my double lift. And then you, boom, you just show me all your weaponry. Yeah. Day one of the convention, we got three more days. You know, I have no use for you. I know what you got. Yeah. Be like Camrys. Act like a bumbling fool. <laughs> and then day four at three in the morning, you bring out the big guns and slay everybody, you know, because they didn't know you could do that. Yeah. Hide it. For, only give them 40%, you know. You got 60% in reserve that uh, is going to spring on them later. That's rambling. I don't even know where I'm going with that. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> it's amazing. And it, it it's interesting to me because it's like, <clears throat> the nugget of it is show it reverence, right? Yeah. And so, like, uh, you're coming at it from, like, the bumbling, gawky, lanky yeah. performer. And then on the other side of it is that serious kind of, I'm going to take this very seriously and not doing anything. Until it's still it's in the there, but it's hidden. It's like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, two different. Yeah. But as I told somebody once, I will jettison the magic in a heartbeat. If I know, if I see that uh, the audience is going to get more from the entertainment value, would be jettisoning. You know, it's all about the audience for me these days. Yeah, it's not about the magic. Number one is the audience. Yeah. Uh, How do you preserve make... the magic? You know, and I usually do. Sure. But I have given myself permission to make it uh, to be an entertainer first and a magician second. Yeah. Well, you've certainly earned it. <laughs> well. I, you know, uh, I realize that's how I've been able to make my living. Yeah. I mean, they say comedy is king, and it really is. I mean, if you can make people have a good time and laugh, uh, that's a value to, to other people, like a company president or a meeting planner. Because I did corporate for 20 years. And, and now I work, you know, these Disney Cruise Lines, and I work for The Illusionists, and I work for do these different things. 
But it's always, and I think the reason people have responded to me is because, you know, they know they're going to have a good time. And it's not just about the magic. You mm-hmm. know? But in my heart, I'm a magician, you know. Yeah, like at the Magic Castle last night, I think halfway through my ring and rope trick, I'm sitting there, I'm looking out, and there's 80% magicians just knowing everything I'm doing. And I just jettisoned it halfway through the routine. I go, okay, and then it goes back together and blah, blah, blah. Let's go on the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was just telling Mike, they should have a rule at the Magic Castle. Don't let magi- save the front row at least for laymen. I agree. This, the, I actually have I saw a guy actually down. taking notes oh, in my audience. Disgusting. And another one, a member, fell asleep in the front row. Okay, I don't mind. You're tired. Sit in the back row. Yeah. Save that for people who want to be there. Yeah. I, this is something that I wrote down because I saw you Friday night and Saturday. Or no, Saturday night and Sunday night. Oh, you saw two? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know I that. saw the one with Joel Hodgson. In which you also jettisoned the rope trick. Oh, yeah. I jettisoned everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, this this is an interesting catch-22 for me. Um, I pr- probably over ten times this week, I heard the phrase, David Williamson is the greatest magician alive. How's that possible? Oh, it was me, my answering machine. You yes. tried to call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have reached. Uh, and, and so... Magicians from across the country come to the castle to see you work the castle. <laughs> I have a point. <laughs> okay, but let me just say this. Yep. I don't know where you're going with this, but the Magic Castle is not uh, the true. That's a bubble. Exactly. And I have trouble there. Last time I worked it four or five years ago, I worked that same room. Mm-hmm. And I saw it was full of magicians. And I was doing all these insider magic. Just And the laymen weren't responding because yep. I was working to doing gags for the magicians. Yes. And my good friend, John Carney, goes, Dave, treat them all like laymen. That's how you work the castle. Yeah. Even if you look, you perceive that it looks like a bunch of magicians, there's laymen there too. Work for the laymen because the magicians want to see you work for the laymen. That's how you do it at the castle. I didn't know. I had forgotten that. I used to work the castle all the time 30 years ago. Yeah. I loved it. Worked all the rooms. But it's been a long time and I kind of forgot that. And for some reason, I saw a lot of magicians, and I was freaking out halfway through the week. I was like, they hate me. I'm not getting any reactions. Well, because you're working to the magicians and just doing magician gags. And the laymen aren't responding because they don't know what the hell you're talking about and what's going on. The tricks aren't working. And yeah. So this time, I remember that lesson. So this time, I tried to be more present for the layman. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw any of that or not. So, so I did, tri- yeah. Okay, totally. good. Because I don't think I jettisoned the magic as much as I did. No, no, no. Past. Okay. <laughs> um, but so that you basically just finished my point. It's this weird catch-22 where the magicians are walking around and they want to see David Williamson, but they've also brought guests right. who they've Don't told David Williamson is the best magician in the world. He's one of my favorite magicians. And so then you're in this weird space where the room is mostly magicians, but yeah. there's also lay people who have right. heard you're the best. And I was going to ask, how do you... Well, I can't, I don't even think about that because it's like, I know I'm not the best and I know what people see at the Magic Castle. If somebody heard, you're about to see the best magician in the world. And they see this guy spitting up needles (laughs) and doing a rope trick that the guy at the bar was doing. Crawling out of a box. Crawling out of a box. (laughs) And I didn't, and a card in mouth, which everybody does. You know, I didn't do any great magic in the Magic Castle. And I don't do any great magic normally. (laughs) I just don't. So they go, that was the greatest magician in the world. Oh, yeah. It was like, oh, undeserved. Well, you have an undeniable presence on stage. It's crafted over thousands of hours of, right. of stage time. But you have a star quality that a lot of magicians don't have, and it's a it's like a, an effervescent personality. 
<clears throat> you look perplexed by that. Yeah, I don't know what that. I don't. I don't relate to that. But uh, I have. I do. I do love being in front of people, and I love uh, yelling at people. <laughs> well, that's it's very <laughs> let, let, maybe, and it's very cathartic. Maybe I should rephrase. It's very clear that you're present with the audience and yes. that they are your priority. If you've ever noticed, you'll never see me do a trick by myself mm-hmm. without an audience member on standing next to me. Because that's the only way I can work is with somebody present and play off them and tease and poke and prod and try to get a reaction. And that's the show. Yeah. It's my interaction with this person or these people or something. That's where the magic happens. That spark between two people in the room at the same time because of what they just said or what I provoke from them or what they provoke from me. It's that dance, that fight. Mm-hmm. And I don't try to stay away from canned material. Yeah. I can't do an in one. If somebody said, okay, just stand there and do a magic trick, we're going to film you. I go, what do you mean stand here and do a magic trick? I need somebody to pick a card and I need somebody I can put in a headlock or, you know, I need to make something happen here. What do you yeah. mean stand here and do a trick? Like a routine from beginning to end? Go get somebody else who does that. I don't do that. I can't. I mean, I can. In my room, I can practice a four-ace trick or a cups and balls or something in front of a mirror, I guess, but it's not what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I did. I'd probably get more work if I had an act where I could just me and a microphone or me and a piece of music and a prop or something. But that's not that's not the way I came up in it. I admire those people. Where does the joy come from? Like why 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 is it that the that spark that is... it's that can be it's the human connection. It's sharing it's uh well, I, I describe it somewhere as attention seeking behavior. When I used to do magic for my mom or my grandma and they would open their hand, the sponges come out, the peals of shouting and laughter, I'm trying to recapture that. Because that's being a middle child. That's love. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're tr- yeah. attention seeking. You have two brothers and you're the one in the middle. You have to, and we're always competing, you know, it's competition for attention. So magic was my, you know, thing that made me you know, get out in the world, meet people, and get people to pay attention to me and get la- provoke laughter or whatever. So just to make something happen, that's what, uh, you know, that's what I try to do. Got to get a spark going, you know, because if it's just me trying to do a card trick, I just, I can't do it. And then there was one trick, the color changing deck. I was like, oh, this works with a little story. Tell the story of Vernon. And, uh, That's my favorite trick. Yeah. And it forced me to kind of do a normal presentation with a story, which I kind of find boring and, you know, when other people do it and stuff. But if I could find a way to organically and, you know, get into it organically rather than go, and now a little thing I like to call the professor and the, you know, I don't do it that way. Yeah, of course. It's more organic. I go, Hey, I met a guy once and I try to make it conversational and I tell the story and then boom. And then when I was doing it and then I put a little music behind it on the ship, you know, I just said the, cause on the ship I had the, we hurricane came and we had two extra days at sea and they go, can you put together a show for us? I go, I don't have any more material. I mean, I could sit there with a deck of cards for five hours if you want, but, uh, but putting a show show together, well, that's fine. So we put a card table on stage, had a close-up camera, <clears throat> and I did a close-up show on in the big theater, and I put it together that night, the night before, and finished with this color-changing deck with a story. And I showed slides of Vernon, and I talked about it to Magic Castle, and talked about this kid who came in and 
He's looking to one-up the professor and make a name for himself, gunfighter mentality, and the way it went down. So I set the scene, and it's a little tinkly music builds while the thing, and, and at the end, and then, uh, boy, I, I'm telling you, and then I go, and I have to, and the cards change color, and a slide comes up, and I go, I'm going to tell you the truth. I was that young man. And there's a picture of me and Vernon on the, and standing ovation. It's like, wow. Chills. I have chills. Oh, you, you could have been doing this all along, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was just like an emergency thing I had to put together. Uh, I was like, wow, there's power in just presenting magic straight ahead in there without being the clown. So I've kind of, you know, I enjoyed that. Yeah. I still, I still do that occasionally. Yeah. But that's usually not me. Yeah. So I find that very hard to have that kind of gravitas, you know. But as I get older, I feel I can get away with that more. And I feel more comfortable in my own skin. See, I had to have other people to play off with all the time. But now I feel more comfortable a little bit in my own skin where I could stand there for a while and just talk and talk to people and be myself a little bit. But it's tough for me. I don't write anything. I don't have scripts. I don't write anything. But if I do it enough times, it becomes a script in of my course. head. Yeah. But I don't sit down and plan out what I'm going to say. It just organically comes together over time and owns it. But uh, yeah, that, that's a challenge, that kind of thing. And I admire people who can do that. Yeah. But I don't, yeah, there are comedy magicians. I mean, Billy McComb could stand up there and do a birdcage or, or a thread you know gypsy thread and be witty and funny and magical all by himself you know people like that that's i can't do that why not i don't know i just didn't i don't choose it's too scary because then you got to be with yourself that's <laughs> you know i hide behind uh the chaos and the that i create i, I guess i just find that was my path you know because to me, close-up magic is about, uh, and I, it's translated to stage. See, this is an interesting thing. Close-up magician goes to stage. Then you see stage magicians go to close-up, right? And when a close-up magician goes to the stage, you see him work in the crowd. You know, and getting personal and getting, uh, and it's very, and it's interesting. But usually, they'll walk into the front row because they want to get, close to the people and the people in the back of the theater can't, all they see is the top of the head. Now you've lost their interest because they don't understand how to put the stage, how the stage works. And that was me. I'd, I'd start talking to one person or do something. The props are too small or I would just use occupy one small piece of the stage and you, you lose. But a stage magician doing close up, there's still a fourth wall. It's very theatrical. They're talking at people. They're scripting. And you lose, you lose people there, even though they're five feet from you. You lose them because there's no interaction. There's no, there's no back and forth. You know, so it's interesting. You know, you got to find the best of both worlds. You know, so it's possible to have scripting close up, but you got to bring the people in. You have to talk to them. One of the most important lessons I learned from table hopping was get their names early and use them often. Small thing but very powerful. It's almost like a magic trick. Yeah. Because you go, hi, I'm Dave, and you're boom, 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 boom. You get all five names, right? Log them away. Because later, five minutes from now, I'm going to turn to Judy, 
and I haven't used her name yet. I go, now Judy's thinking of a card, and Bob over here has the pen pointed right at her forehead. And they, Judy just feels great because you said her name. And that's more powerful than what any magic trick that's going to happen at the table that night. And uh, Bob loves it. You know, and, mm -hmm. and that was a little trick I learned at the tables and in corporate events and things like that. I don't see enough guys doing that. There's like you. Would you do me a favor? Would you do me a favor? Hold this. Do that. You're asking them to do things all the time. Do this. Hold that. A lot of process, you know. It's like bring them into it, you know, and use their names. Find out what they do. Find out what they like. Bring that into it. Be a mirror. Reflect them. There's nothing more interesting to a person than themselves. Yeah. So if they can hear their name, if you can mirror their body language, mirror their laughter, whatever little comment they make, build on that and make it about now or give yourself permission to go there mm -hmm. and go that direction. Bob says something like, I wouldn't want to play cards with you, you know, instead of having a standard retort, let's play cards, Bob. Do you play cards, Bob? What's your favorite game? I don't know, whatever it is. But you, and that's, so I have a friend who's a street performer. He goes, that's where the gold, the coin of the realm, that's where the gold is when you follow down those paths when you don't know what's going to happen. And, and if they trust you enough, they'll, they'll go with you. Now, if you try to mine, and often there's no there there at the end of that. <laughs> yeah. So it's risky. But where there's risk, there's reward. And then, unless you're willing to take risks, you're only going to move the needle so far. And it'll never go beyond that. But if you're willing to risk it and open yourself up or explore or jettison the trick to go over here, sometimes there's bigger payoff than you've ever imagined. And then you get used to doing that. Mm -hmm. You give yourself permission to do that. And then that becomes your thing and more important than this canned trick that you you know were relying on. You just got to get outside of your comfort zone a little bit. So early on, I gave myself permission to kind of go there and mm -hmm. crawl out of boxes and pull guy's underwear out and grab him by the lapels and yell at him and stuff like that and suck on ladies' thumbs. and You know, it's just, it's stuff, but it's like I'm trying to provoke yeah. humanity there and real moments, you know, that, that can't be repeated. And they know that because they know, they know when it's canned. They know when a performance, as soon as they leave the room and the next audience is in line, they know that next audience is going to see the same thing you, you just saw. Yeah. Or they know that there's no way that next audience is going to, that same it stuff is going to happen. Yeah. I'm glad I was in this first show because Joel Hodgson wandered in. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so you gave yourself permission to take risks and that was, it kind of became your thing. And you became comfortable taking risks? Yeah. So it, then, It's almost like a drug. Yeah. Well, know? then how are you then uh, taking risks now? I still do. Uh, you know, it's, you know, as I get older, you get, then you get too, a little too comfortable. Like at the castle was a risk. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I saw, I know that, uh, well, I mean, in, in little ways all the time, even on the stage, uh, like at the, at the uh, cruise ship or in Circus 1903, when I do the ringmaster, I bring four kids on stage. Yeah. I tell people I have the most dangerous act in the circus. <laughs> <clears throat> because I have four kids on stage. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen. I don't know. And I ask them questions. You don't know what they're going to say. They wander off. We've had kids just start running and playing on the equipment. And we've had the corral. I mean, we've had anything you could imagine with kids on stage could happen, has happened. You know, over eight years of Disney Cruise Line and then me, even before that, and then the circus, thousands of performances all over. It's all happened, and it's crazy sometimes. Sometimes it goes as you know normal, but sometimes it doesn't, and we're re I'm ready for all of it. 
And that's fun. You know, I can't wait because it's like you throw yourself into the voyage. Like, here goes. I'm yeah. not sure. I kind of know what's going to happen, but I'm not sure. But I'm, I, hope, I hope it goes off script tonight. You hope. You hope for that one kid yeah. who says something or does something. Or, or even that one adult who just goes. Yeah. And, but all performers understand that. Yeah. yeah. It becomes a happening. Yeah. Yeah. It is. That's that's where you get your ju- yeah. That's where you get uh, uh, what do you call it? Endorphins or something like that. You know, yeah. It is you like get the drug. adrenaline. You get rush, adi- yeah. yeah, the adrenaline. You get you get addicted to it. It's like I want that again. So you have to recreate that. So somebody said something. It was a cruise director on one of the Disney cruise lines. He was a, had a theater background. I go, man, you gotta repeat that show. How you how these kids you know on the stage doing this show? And he goes, we don't repeat. We recreate. So oh, that's a that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I like that. We don't repeat, we recreate. Yeah, all the elements are there. Because just like in magic, theater, it happens in their mind, you know. Who are some of your comedic influences? I don't know. Lots of, I mean, I love to laugh, so. Three Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's Brothers. Steve. Mar- I just saw Steve Martin and Martin Short. They came to Dayton, little yeah. performing arts center there. Loved it. Uh, but I always loved Steve Martin and George Carlin and Richard Pryor, all the guys from my era, you know. Yeah. W.C. Fields. And, uh, yeah. What did you learn from those guys when you were coming up? I don't know. I just love watching, uh, you know, grown men act silly. I always love that. And that's why I love Jay Marshall and Carol Fox and Tom Mollica. It just tickled me for some reason. It's <laughs> 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 like, that's what I want to do. Grown men acting stupid. Yeah. I like, I, I've, I've said this on the podcast many times, but when you're the performer and you're in front of an audience, you have all of the power. And you're in a unique position where you can give regular people in their regular lives permission to do things that they don't get to do. And so when there's an adult acting very silly, that's incredibly freeing. And in a way, you turn these adults into children by giving them this wonder. Absolutely. Well, I did enough corporate shows that I know that these, even the stuffiest and the most serious people are, it's just a 10-year-old inside a shell. Of an adult, everybody walking a around. A broken session. Everybody walking around on this earth is a little child waiting to pop out, you know, and that's how I treat him. I watch Bill Malone work a room at a corporate event, and he's the court jester. And these people, I don't care how important or rich or powerful they are, they become little school kids, and he's the class clown. And it's like kindergarten at a uh, multi-million dollar function, you know what I mean? The high-end Fortune 500 corporate event. And it's great to watch, you know, because that's everybody just wants to laugh and have a good time, really, you know? Yeah. And that, that's what our job is. We're the court jesters, you know, the ringmasters or whatever you want to call it. But, uh, yeah, magic's just a conduit, you know, to give people permission to come out of their shell a little bit. That's the great thing about magic because you have all the different styles, you know. You have people respond to Darren Brown and uh, you have people respond to, you know, all these great, you know, styles of magic. Whether it's an illusionist, David Copperfield, you know, Bill Malone, or, you know, it's all it's all in there. And it's all the one-ahead principle. That's all it is. It all comes down to that. The only principle in magic. Who was it said the one ahead principle, the greatest principle of magic? 
Larry Jennings. It's the only goddamn principle <laughs> of magic. Like, I think that might be true. Maybe. Next. I do a lot of waiting, and I can cut out the silence if I need to. Okay. But I like when everybody has a stock answer for every question. Yeah. And then when you they run out of things to say... They start saying interesting things. Yes. <laughs> and you've done that a bunch. And no, I don't mean stock answers, but I mean like there's been a lot of contemplative insight. I don't know what I think. See, I, I look at these guys, like when Paul Wilson made Our Magic, it's a talk, he got all, this, all the smart guys. And they know what they're... They're, they're what I call organized thinkers. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people like that in magic, which is really cool. But they know what they think, and they can articulate it. I'm not that guy. I don't know what I think until I start talking, and I'll come around to it after about a half an hour, and I go, maybe that's what I think about it, but it's all conditional. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have strong opinions about too much in magic. I'm like, I don't know. It's all about the context. Yeah, that's right. And that goes back to just playing the audience in front of you and being yeah. in the room and being alive with it. Yeah, being, and that was kind of my whole, uh, yeah, being present. I mean... Here's how I judge a perform another performer, and it's hard for me to judge performers because you usually only see them at a magic convention, and that's the worst place to see a, a magician or at a castle or something like that. You, know, you need to see them out in the field for working for real people. That's when you get the real. But how easy is it to watch? Is it easy to watch? There's a lot of hard work. Is there a lot of process? Or is there a lot of extraneous movement? There's you know weird quirkiness or something. Like, it's like how easy was that to watch? You know, the magic or the comes through. It's hard to do. Not too many people, but I can go. You know, some people are hard work mm-hmm. to watch. They ask too much of you. But then, then some people just have it all comes together, and they figured it out, and they're able to communicate what they want to communicate, and it just pours out of them. You know, and there was no process apparently. Yeah, there's always process. But uh, you know, the best stage magicians are the ones who you forget there were even boxes. Yeah. Involved. It's hard to do. I have a new appreciation. I watched work with uh, like Kaylin and Ginger. Yeah. And a new appreciation for, you know, really good illusionists, you know, because a bad one is hard to watch (laughs) on stage. It's just like close up. It's all hard to watch when they don't haven't figured it out yet or don't care to, you know. But, uh, yeah. What do you think it is that, that does it? I mean, what makes something easy to watch versus hard to watch? I mean, I, I intuitively understand, but if yeah. you had to describe uh, it. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know. The process, they've made the process invisible. Uh, like I said. The process of creation or the process of the actual trick? Or the, the process of the trick, of getting from A to Z. They can communicate what they're trying to communicate without you having to explaining too much. A lot of people over-explain. There's a lot of uh, expository <clears throat> stuff going on. You're trying to convince me that magic is happening by walking me through the logic of what's happening. You know, a picture's worth a thousand words, and people are going, now I'm going to put this in my hand, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, and I'm going to. And I call it the I'm going to school of magic. <laughs> now I'm going to this, and I'm going to that. I can see that. Yes, I see you're holding a card. I see you put it in the deck. I see you shuffling. Why are you telling me this? It wears on me because I'm seeing it with my eyes, but then you're asking me to process it through another part of my brain as well as if that's extra convincing. I'd rather you tell me a story or say something interesting 
Are you just because you haven't thought about your presentation? That's the only reason you're expo doing expository, because you haven't you have nothing else to say because you haven't stopped to think about it, or you have. And I guarantee you haven't done this in front of an audience uh, enough. Yeah. Because you wouldn't have a career if this is what it was like. This is must be a new trick, or you've only been doing it a short time, or you're still working on it, because there's no way somebody's going to sit still for this mess. You know? <laughs> guy came up to me once after a lecture somewhere, young guy, and he goes, "Can I show you a trick?" And I'm sure, and he goes through this long, you know, roundabout picture frame and a letter and a wax stamp and a thing, and he's explaining the logic, blah, 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 blah. and he goes, "What do you think?" I went. Uh, and it was something that I was trying out when people asked me what I think. Because I used to go, that's great. And just walk away. Because I didn't, it's like, I have to, are you really ready for the, what I think? Or, yeah. I, you know. Or the other question is, if I tell you what I think, will you change anything? I mean, do you value, how much do you value my opinion? Do you just want positive feedback? It's like, but I go, well, if you're still doing it in 15 years, uh, it's probably a pretty good trick, but it won't look anything like that. I promise. If you're still doing this in 15 years, it'll be unrecognizable. It won't look anything like what you just did. That's what I think. And the guy looked at me real puzzled. And he said, uh, I was just looking for a quote for my DVD. He's already had it shrink-wrapped. He's ready to market it. No. And I was like, you know what? It's, uh, it was hard to watch and... You just haven't thought about what, you know, I don't know. Anyway, that's the whole magic market right there. That's why. What did you learn from publishing young? Cause you I were, didn't you're publish pretty, anything. Well, you're, you were fairly young when you when the Slide of Dave DVDs. Oh, okay. That, that's what I mean. That I made. Yeah. I was in my almost 30. Maybe I was over 30 at that point. Yeah, I was in my you 30s. You look 17 <laughs> in this video. How old was I when I you made You have those? a timeless beauty, David. I know. I might have been in my 20s when I did that. I don't know. We snuck into uh, the AARP in downtown Washington, D.C. had its own TV studio. <clears throat> and the guy who worked for them, their video guy uh -huh. who ran the studio, was in the Magic Club. So I made a deal with him. I go, look, care. Let's, you know, we can sneak in at 2 in the morning after the security and the janitorial staff leave, shoot for three or four hours before the security staff comes in at 6 or 7 a.m. or whatever. So we had like four or five hours in the middle of the night. So we kind of went in, shot all this raw footage <laughs> with one guy, you know, as my audience. He was the other cameraman and then snuck out. And then I sent all the footage to my two brothers in Hollywood who were uh, editors. Yeah. And they put all the crazy commercials it's and so all funny. the sound effects and stuff in. I go, just make it watchable. You know, they yeah. did all that on their own. I thought it was hilarious. And... uh so that was just something to do because uh, I was starting to do a few lectures then because I wouldn't get a lot of work. So I was like, at that point, I was getting able to travel and do some lectures and I wouldn't have something to sell. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what do you mean? What did I learn? Well, so I, I didn't know uh, if there was anything that you learned from the process of selling your own magic. And you know, then coming out of it and then going, oh, that wasn't received how I wanted it to be. Or now everybody's doing that thing. That's, that's that was I'm before doing. the internet. So you don't have any feedback. You yeah. mail somebody a, a VHS tape or they you sell it to them at a magic convention and you never hear from them again. There's mm -hmm. no chat room or there's no. So I don't know. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> but 
I got, but the response back I did get, people really liked it because here's the letters I would get. This is the only magic DVD that my wife pops in to show her friends because of all the stupid commercials and the funny stuff. My kids watch it. It's the most entertaining instructional DVD because it was all that junk in there my brothers put in. Yeah. And uh, they had it on app at an Abbott's Magic Shop just on a loop for a long time, you know, just for years, just apparently looping. And all the guys were there were sick of me, but they could recite everything, the whole video from, from back. But uh, people seem to like that. And, I, and that's all due to my brothers who put all that stuff in there. But no, I, I kind of went out on lectures early on because I met Michael Amart like when I was 15 or 16. And he and Daryl kind of paved the way for the next wave of lecturers. They uh-huh. cut a wide swath through America and Europe and kind of were the model for these lecture tours. Now, <clears throat> before that, people lectured, but it was these pros like Danny Tong or uh, uh, some of the old, old pro magicians would come through. And, and if they happened to be in a town, they'd do a lecture, but they didn't like go set on at a 30-city lecture tour. There wasn't that kind of money in it, really, back then. Uh, there'd always been magic lectures, but it was more of a hobby kind of thing. And Mike and Daryl figured out, and it was all the formula, and I don't know if it, Mike or Daryl or whoever came up with the first price per pound per square inch. That's why Daryl's stuff was always flat. It was paper. It was silks. It was rope. Price per pound per square inch. They could sell something that would fit in an envelope, you know, two envelopes of $80 worth of product in there, you know, yeah. they could stack suitcases in the back of a car. And, uh, Mike had lectured over in Europe and, uh, he'd been doing the striking vanish little move I came up with and showed him and he loved it. And he did it all the time in his lectures and he would always mention my name and he was in Germany and a young magician, Thomas van Buren Lenger from Hanover, Germany. He was a young sleight of hand fan and he had seen Michael Amar and Jay Sankey and Michael Weber had all kind of done Europe and he goes who is this David Williamson character you know and he wrote me a letter I was 23 years old 22 and he was my age very organized young man and he said I would like to arrange a lecture I've never done this for anybody but I want to arrange a lecture tour through Europe so he arranged a 30 city lecture tour and took like two or three months I flew to Europe got a Euro pass lived on the trains Went all over Europe, <clears throat> hit magic conventions and magic clubs and all the capitals for a couple months. And uh, it was great. I loved it. And I had really good responses, made lifelong friends, met Roberto Joby and, you know, JJ and Chris Power in England. And I just made friends in every country and every city. And to this day, FISM to me is just a big family reunion, you know, every time I go. So... That was great. And I thank Michael for that and Thomas Van Buren Langer. And that kind of, I saw there that the, the wider world of magic and more context and, and it was fantastic. And so for me, lectures weren't about making money though. Because I, I saw, again, I saw perceived two paths. Mm-hmm. You can make money from magicians. And I didn't want to do that because from the age of 10, I wanted to be a professional magician, make money from I want to work for real audiences, and that's how I wanted to do it. Yeah. So for me, lectures were, I would dip into the lecture world uh, when times were tough and I didn't have other work. Yeah. And after a while, you get burnt. I got a little burnt out. I go, I don't want to be burnt out by magic because I love it too much. So I said, stop lecturing. You know, and do yeah. Because I don't want to be the guy. I never want to be the guy. They go, and we have David Williamson. And they go, oh, great. Him again. 
You know? Yeah. Because I felt that way sometimes. I'd go to Magic Convention, and so-and-so. It's like, he's every year. I've already seen him a million times. Get some new blood in here. So I yeah. didn't want to be that guy that people yeah. resent me showing up, taking the spot of somebody they really want to see. So I, for, after a while, there was a couple years in there where I did too many. You know, it was like, I was too much. So I pulled back. <laughs> but it's always great. Because for me, magic is uh, my social life. All my friends are magicians. Yeah. I don't have any, I can't name one layman who's a friend. My wife tries to hook me up with her friend's <laughs> husbands. I can't talk about baseball or lawnmowers or, you know. Yeah. I'm just, I have no interest in talking to a layman. <laughs> That's awful, doesn't it? How many friends? All my friends are magicians, but none of them live in Yellow Springs, Ohio, so. For a few years, what I had to do when I moved back to, to Yellow Springs from Washington, D.C., I found a little theater, and they said, do you want to do a show here? And I said, I'll do that. Let's do something better. Let's do a big charity, because there was a historic theater they are trying to raise money for, and my wife was on the board of this nonprofit uh, stable for handicapped kids and stuff. And uh, let's do a charity. Well, I'm going to put on a magic show, and we'll sell tickets and give money to the charity. And my first show was John Carney and Matt King and me. Oh, wow. And it, we blew the roof off that dump. It was a little 500-seat <laughs> opera house in Cedarville, Ohio. God, it was the most fun. To this day, if you ask my best, the most fun I ever had on stage was with those guys. Because we had the run of the place. Yeah. The lunatics had the asylum. You know what I mean? <laughs> my kids were on the spotlight. My brothers were on the, the uh, curtains. And, you know, and we just... They turned, gave us the keys and go, okay, I guess you guys know what you're doing. I'm like, no, we don't. But the, And that's the only way I could get my friends to come visit me. So I, I call up back and I go, guess what you're doing April 3rd? What? Uh, you're coming to Yellow Springs, Ohio, and you're not being paid a dime. Same with John Carter. I'm there. And they both came and we stayed at the farm. and we had. A, oh, it was so great. And then I did that, like, six or seven of those. Mike and Tina were in, Charlie Fry and all, David Kaplan, and just a bunch of friends. Yeah. Bill Hurst was in one. and. God, it was so much fun. My friend John Eakin. What was my point? I don't know. Is that something you ever think about maybe for a time in the future? Just producing shows of friends and new no. blood? And... No, it was too hard. It was hard. <laughs> Even and, and as simple as it was, I didn't like that part of it. Selling yeah. tickets and marketing and all that. I, was like, I just want to do the show part. I'm going to call my friends and have fun and do the show part. Being an administrator. Yeah. I don't see how people do these things. Conventions and producing shows. A lot of headaches. Is there any... Go ahead. No. Is there any new blood that is very exciting to you and that you think... Magic? Yeah. I don't get out as much as I used to. Yeah. But when I do dip into... I'm able to go to a convention like a Magic Live or something. Because when I was doing Circus, we were in Vegas. So yeah. I was able to go to Magic Live every night after the show or every afternoon before the show. And there's so much new... Guys, young guys are so good. I'm overwhelmed because it's all changed. Because I've been out of it a little bit, you know. I, yeah. And uh, not keeping up. So. What do you mean it's changed? I mean, uh, how do you feel? The it's cast changed? characters have changed. I don't know the new names. Oh, okay, I don't know okay. the new people. I don't know the material. I don't yeah, know the yeah. references. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but I absolutely love it. We did the circus 1903 in Singapore two months ago and I just put a little thing on Facebook I go hey where's a guy got a where, where's a good place to sit and shuffle cards in this town well out of the woodwork all these great Singapore 
magicians, close-up guys, yeah. artistry guys and stuff. My hotel was, for that week, every night, there's 30, 40, 50. It was a flash mob of uh, like Cardistry Con or something, or Magic Con or something. And it was great because all these guys in Singapore were so savvy and so knowledgeable. Here's a little twist on a Brother John Hammond thing. And Vernon really used to do that. And it was so great. I loved it. And I didn't know any of these guys, but the, boy, the talent was off the roof. There's a guy named Harapun. Yep. He's, he's kind of the ringleader there. And he kind of arranged that, all that. Fantastic. He's so good. He's so good and so well read. Very well read. Yeah. I was impressed, and he was very accommodating. What a, yeah. So thank you, Harapon, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, young guys. There's so many good young guys. Yeah, uh, you don't and have to single anybody out, but I. What, what? How? How do you feel about the future of magic? Are you excited? I'm about always it? positive about it, no yeah. matter what. I mean, it's lasted these this long, thousands of years. No, it's not. It's going not going to be ruined. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. What do you think about the the social media and the YouTube and the? It's all good. It's yeah. all good. I mean, it's different. You know, it's cha- it'll change it, but I'm not necessarily. But who am I to say if it's good or bad? But I think uh, it's different. But look at this: uh, a kid will come up with a move, or see, or read something from a book and put it online, and then within 24 hours, it has been crowdsourced, improved, and hacked, and around the globe. Another kid in uh, Malaysia will say it, another kid in South Africa will do this to it. And then, uh, and then by Thursday, it's a, it's a really cool thing, you know? And, yeah. And I love uh, what Dan and Dave have started, this whole movement, you know, this cardistry. Because I know if, because, you know, Klaus and all the guys who I grew up under, you know, if you got too fancy, they would like look at you like, what are you doing? Showing off, you know? It's, yeah. We were taught to subvert your skills. 40%. 40%. Don't show them what you can do. You know, it's, if you want the magic to look good, it's all about the magic and the effect. Don't be too fancy. It's all about being natural. And Vernon and Charlie Miller and Fawcett Ross and people like that but they're high priests of naturalness and I joined that church mm-hmm. big time and uh, so I didn't even I mean the most I ever did was a hand spring and maybe a pressure fan that's about it I might I came up with a couple of flourishes I flip out and these guys would look at me like what are you a juggler or are you, are you a magic you know and slap my hand yeah. you know you get spanked you know if you're too fancy but if I had grown up in this era, I'd be all over that. You know, I love it. And this kid in China, it took me, we were on a bus together, we were doing a tour for three weeks. It took me three weeks just to learn the revolution cut. Yeah. Yeah. But I love it. And I do it all day long now. I just, and they go, that's just, that's not even anything. <laughs> you know? So funny story. Uh, I go, uh, I was here in LA, I don't know how many years ago, over 10 years ago. I said, I called my buddy, John Carney, let's go to the Magic Apple and see the Buck Twins are lecturing. This is when they were still kind of, <clears throat> and he goes, eh, I don't know. It's Saturday. There's never parking there. And it's I a good Carney. <laughs> yeah, John, he didn't, never wants to leave his park. I go, I'll buy you lunch. Okay. So I pick him up and we go, and there's plenty of parking because everybody who attended the lecture was dropped off by their parents. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
So we go in. I need to preface that. I always preface this story by saying when I was a kid in ring five, somebody would be lecturing me and go, then you do the Elmsley count. And there's always the old guy in the back of the room. What's an Elmsley count? And we go, oh, great. We got to wait for grandpa to catch up. Yeah. Know, Cause we're all the young guys were up front, you know, trying to learn the trick and got to wait for grandpa. To, it's like, you know, geez. So anyway, John and I are the old guys at the back of the room. Like, do simple three and go right into Magnum. And I'm going, what's Magnum? And I see all these kids turn around looking at him. Who said that? You know, I'm like, well, we're the old guys in the back of the room. His granddad stayed for yeah, the lecture. granddad. <laughs> Carney and I made a big exit halfway through. I just threw the cards in and go, let's go have lunch. You know, good luck making a living with those cuts, kids. But I was being uh, ironic. I hope I made him laugh because I, I really admire it. And yeah. I love it. I, every time I see, go to a convention, I gravitate towards the kids. Like, show me something. Teach me. I want to learn that. Ooh, teach me that. Go to Magi Fest. And I revel in it. I love it. I lo- it's eye candy. I can watch it all day. And I try to learn a few things. But I'm, I'm not I'm not that guy. <laughs> but I do appreciate it. I know how much hard work goes into it and how much fun they're having. Yeah. And they don't want to work a blue and gold banquet. They don't want to work a, they, a cruise ship. They want to make a video and put it online and get on with their life. To me, it's, I, I, I think it's like skateboarding. Because it used to be you want a bicycle deck because it looks natural and normal. That's yeah. not a trick deck. But now it's all about the graphics. And to, to, to me, it was like, no, I want that look like a bicycle. But today, it's all these amazing, beautiful cards and these graphics. and I love it. When you talked about joining the Church of Naturalists, what do you think they meant when they said be natural? Where's and uh, I need we're in Mike's library here. I can find an expert card technique. In his introduction, he talks about that. And he basically I can't find it. I don't know what his system is. It's under A. <laughs> Where? Under A. You got it. Oh, H. Uh where is it? G, H, so Hugard, Houdini, Goldstein. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Thank you. All right, let's see. Let's see if it's in here. Presentation. Uh, it may take me a second to find it. Is this a Vernon chapter or a Charlie Miller chapter? Yeah. Well, it might be it might be uh, Hugard himself because it's in one of the introductory chapters and talking about presentation. But it's a great the presentation chapter talks about good humor and patter and uh, presentation of magic. Let's see. I'm not going to be able to find it anytime soon. It's somewhere buried in here. Basically, what he's saying is the card artist. Uh, hides his skill to make the magic. You know, come forward. Mm-hmm. The true artist. You know, like a ninja. He didn't say ninja, but you know. Yeah. You hide your skill. I mean, we all know that. That's, that's nothing. But he he says it very eloquently, and he mm-hmm. makes the point in that book. And that's and I read that as a young age, and I took that to heart. I thought that's the way, and that's what Vernon would say: be natural and use your head. That was his mantra: be natural and use your head. You know, be smart, think about it. And you're not always going to be natural, but you can give the illusion of naturalness. And to me, that meant being loose and uh, 
And that's what I talked about. That's what I meant when I talked about, you know, psychological warfare with my brothers. You know, if they, if they saw me being unnatural, if in they any could way, feel it. They could feel it. Just the way you walked into the room, like what, what, you're what, what do you want? What's what the you, trick? Yeah. What are you doing? You're, what are you doing? I, you, the way you're, you never look at me when you look in the room. So I have to come in. It's almost like gorillas in the mist. You know, Diane Fossey or whatever. You come in like a pack of gorillas. You know, you come in with your back. You look down. You. you you know, you can't walk up to them, look them in the eye, and go. I, it just, you have to sneak into it. Yeah. Like I said, forty percent. And same with cards. You know, everything has to be natural and not artful. But I think there's value in neat handling. You know, your mastery of your props. Yes. Because if it's too sloppy, then you get into that realm of hard to watch. You know, bumbling idiot. That's not what I'm saying. But it's. You, just as an illusionist, you know, a good illusionist, the boxes disappear. Uh, a good close-up magician, there's still process there. And if you're touching the deck and ruffling it too much and going to your dardos, darting to your pocket with no reason, little things like um, there's a trick where I have to do a top change. And I watch this. I watch these rough edges with other guys. And some of it I can perceive, and other I go, something's wrong with this, do it again. And I go, oh, I know what it is. You turned the deck, you took the card out face up, mm-hmm. turned the deck face down with one hand, and then it, while you're pattering, you turn the card face down, and then you do a top change, right? Yeah. So there's process here, believe it or not. You have a face-up deck, you're out Jolga ace. What would be smoother is once the ace is out jogged, with two hands, turn the deck face down. Now the deck is openly with two hands, you know, and now pull the, now the ace is face down and the deck is face down. Mm-hmm. Now pull it out and show it to them and talk before the top change. But if you take it out face up, you have these two kind of, there's no elegant way to turn the deck down with face hand. Well, there is now these cardistry guys pop Just it pop face it, down. Yeah. But again, that now that's a display of skill. Yep. And it also doesn't seem necessary. You know what I mean? It, or it seems necessary. Like, why is he turning the deck face down at this point? Uh, after the card has been taken out of the deck, you should uh, turn it face down before the card is taken out of the deck. And now there's no turning the deck face down and yeah. turning the card face down. That's extra process. And it's a rough edge. And it drives me crazy. It's like fingers on a chalkboard. Little things like that. Just simplifying and condensing. Sim- and yeah, streamlining. Streamline, streamline. No process, no rough edges, easy to watch, and it, then it disappears. Mastery of props. And, it, and it's easy, and it's and it's and everything's motivated. That's the other thing that natural means. Everything, movement is motivated. I do a trick with a salt shaker and a cup, right? And, I, and these aren't things I thought of in my bedroom. It's... It's just out there in the world, you know, and you learn over time. You keep getting caught enough. You get sick of being caught. Either quit doing the trick or figure out why, how not to get caught. And uh, I finally figured out, you know, I have this thumb tip finger palm with a bunch of salt in it. And I can't, how am I going to get this salt to the cup? I have to touch the cup and move it out of the way. But if you do it at the wrong moment, there's no reason for you to touch that cup. So what I, you create these moments, motivation, and I'd say, clean out the cup, and I push the saucer towards them while they're cleaning. Now, the saucer has a little circle in the middle. It's a target. That's cup and saucer. They belong together. 
And just that act of with my empty hand pushing the saucer towards them, it's to indicate that they put it back there. It's nonverbal. Yeah. It's just a little gesture. But it's it's perfectly natural in their mind. The cup goes right back to the saucer. They've cleaned the cup. And I don't say make sure the cup is empty. That's the other thing. I Because I used to. And I go, oh, empty? Oh, you mean it's going to be full? That's the mm-hmm. opposite. You know, it's in the same realm. I say, our dishwasher quit. <laughs> He's doing card tricks at the tables. <laughs> he thinks he's a magician. We're auditioning. Would you clean out that cup? And they clean the cup. And as soon as they set the cup down, I act perturbed. Saucer too. And it's only after I say those words that now my hand has permission to reach towards the cup, move it off to the side while they pick up the saucer. And because I had permission and because there's a reason, because it's motivated, it never happened. Yep. I never touched the cup. In fact, about a minute later, I actually say, I haven't touched the cup because they put the saucer on the cup and they're holding it in their hand. I haven't touched anything. I haven't. And they're going, that's right. You didn't. Didn't touch the cup. <clears throat> Only because I created that whole scenario, you know. And that took a long, lot of years for me to figure out. Being caught and people, I see their hand. As soon as you move your hand, I see people. There's one guy who's always watching for everything. You know? Yeah. So it's not psychological warfare, you know. That's the most important move in that in that whole routine is me pushing the saucer half an inch towards them while they're cleaning the cup. That sets up everything else that's going to follow after that. A lot of guys miss that, or they haven't gotten to that point yet because they haven't done the trick 10,000 times yet. And they still keep getting caught, you know. Mm-hmm. Or they don't even know they're being caught, but they are. Yeah. You, know, you see people dart, you know. You, those are the hard things. And that's what I'm into. That's what I mean by naturalness. You know, you have to manufacture these quote unquote natural things. How do you deal with, like if you're performing something or let's say it's informally and you're just doing things for a few people, Mm -hmm. but somebody, you can tell somebody has caught you doing a thing. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I uh, don't have a persona of, and he talks about this here too, about your kind of performing persona. My persona is not of one of a mysterious magician and I have powers beyond you. Know? Mm-hmm. And so if I get caught, there's more important things in the world. Yeah. You know, I'd rather just fess up. Ah, he caught me. Let's do another, you know, and let's have another drink if it's informal, something like that. So getting caught because I got caught so much, the world didn't end and my career didn't end. I don't care. Yeah. Not that big a deal. So I don't care about being caught, which means... I think that's translated into my shoulders are more relaxed. I don't give a shit if the card's peeking out a little bit. I forget the cards in my hand because I don't care about getting caught. And that means I get caught a lot less because there's no hint that I should be caught at this point. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, again, that comes with experience. If you're keyed up about getting caught at this move, you're going to... Fuck it up. If you're worried about spilling this full glass of milk and your mom's going, don't spill, don't spill. Well, that guarantees you're going to spill. But if the carpet's old. Don't drop the mug. I haven't touched it. <laughs> yeah. If the, yeah. If, if the carpet's old and you're moving out tomorrow anyway. Yeah. And you know the carpet's going to go in the dumpster. You'll walk across that room and you won't spill a drop. Yeah. You don't give a shit. And that's the way I feel. I don't give a shit if I get caught these days. I used to. Yeah. I got caught a lot. So, but now... If somebody, if I see, I have a stock line. If I see somebody knows that I stole a watch or 
put a card under my knee or something like that. And I can tell they clocked me. Yeah. I looked right in their eye. And I go, I have some non-disclosure forms for you to fill out later after the show. <laughs> you know, make a joke out of it. And they laugh. And I go, and maybe you too in a few minutes. And, you know, they mm-hmm. it's it's a, uh, what, what do you call that mentalism where it's a dual reality? Dual reality. Yeah. yeah. So I communicate them. I know you know. Yeah. We're on the same team. Let's let's finish this trick. And yeah. they see I'm still in the game. Yeah. I haven't given up the game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I would still like for this to work for the ne- for the other three people at the table. Yeah. I've just communicated that. Yeah. Now they may still be an asshole and go, it's under his knee. And I go, you know, the thing about knees is they go grow cards. But here, you know, and I'll just admit it. <laughs> yeah. The closer I can get to the truth, the better. You know, if you have too many layers of bullshit, and that's what I mean by uh, if you have a story that's not true at all, or this card represents this and that, and this, and they can smell bullshit. They don't care. They're not invested. So I, I try to keep it as close to the truth as possible, everything that's happening. So if I did get caught and I go, yeah, that's the truth. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, me. I don't care. Hopefully I'm a still entertaining guy and I got more stuff to offer. Yeah. But it happens less and less. But those are good lessons. I got caught a lot. It's important to get caught a lot. Oh, yeah. Just like, you, you're I not going to learn. For, you have to anything. You got to make mistakes. Yeah. Mistakes are good. Otherwise, you never progress. What was the hardest time you bombed? <laughs> oh, God. I'll, I know exactly when it was. <laughs> it's so many of them. I got lots of stories where I bombed. I used to get flop sweat all the time because I was just so bad. And they didn't know what I was doing. But uh came up with this routine uh, where I would make the underwear change places on two kids. <coughs> David Copperfield started doing it on tour and TV shows because Kenner saw me do it. Pete Byro years ago goes, I want to put you on a stand-up comedy show next year's IBM and Baltimore. And I go, I don't do stand-up. I'm a close-up magician. You know, this is a long time ago. Well, you got a year. I go, okay. Challenge accepted. Yeah. Year goes by. I hadn't given a thought. And the night before the big show, I'm laying in bed, panicking. Yeah. I fall asleep. And uh, my best ideas come when I have a lot of fear, motivating fear, you know. Likewise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Panic. And Marsha wakes me up in the middle of the night. She goes, what's going on? You're laughing in your sleep. And I had dreamt this whole routine. And uh, I did it the next day. And I dreamt the method, the music, and everything. And I quickly got the props together. <clears throat> it was a spirit saint's cloth. And I get two kids up, and I have an old lady make an initial. What's your name? Bobby. And I grab him and pull his underwear up. And she writes, I go, put a B, you know, or number one on this, you know. And then uh, the other kid now knows what's in store. She starts running. I have to chase him and grab him, and he's wiggling. And yeah. you couldn't get away with this today. Completely yeah. inappropriate. Pull his underwear out, and she puts a number two on this one, right? So they're standing there next and the music starts, and it's the doors touch me. Come on, come on, and touch me. But completely inappropriate. This is a magic invention <laughs> back in the 80s or something. Throw out the spirit seance cloth in front of the first kid, and you see him rise up in the air. Because I'm basically holding him like this, you know. Yeah. <laughs> He's flying or trying to get away, and it's just melee, bedlam, you know. And it comes off like this, and then you see the little underwear, pair of underwear come over, start floating, like David Copperfield's floating Hank, you know. Then I go over top of this kid, and same thing, and then it, so it's a crisscross of, and I go now, and the big line was, which one of you has number two on your underwear, you know? <clears throat> Stupid. But the underwear do change places. He has number two on his, and he has number one written on his in indelible ink. Wow. At the end of the trick. Fooled everybody. Kenner was like, oh my God. And they 
called me, you know, can David do that? I go, sure, it's just a gag, you know, I don't care. And they did it. But, of course, he does it with two hot chicks. Of course. Why did I think of that? I'm good kids. <laughs> I did it the next night with, like, fat old men. I had giant underwear like this. It was funny. But <clears throat> they hired me for the um, some big IBM installation proper dinner at uh, in England, in London. And John Fisher, Paul Daniels' producer, was there in his tuxedo. And Paul Daniels and David Berglass, tuxedos and medals. It was a ladies and tiaras and it was in a very nice ballroom and it was a and I'm on the bill and I don't know why I'm there and I don't I'm not still not a stand-up magician but it's a stand-up show and I said I go well that's a bunch of magicians I'll do this I saw a couple kids in little suits oh my god and I go <laughs> this is the greatest I thing go up to the kids and I go listen I'm gonna do a trick later with you guys and I want you to you feel free to because they were so polite hello yes sir yes sir thank you sir I go it's not going to be funny because they're just going to stand there. I go, feel free to kick me and run away and hit me and fight me a little bit. And, you know, we'll make it fun. Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, so the thing starts and I grabbed the first kid. He wouldn't stop kicking and hitting me. You know, he was a monster. A little, and it was like I'm laying on the ground with him, rolling around, pulling his underwear out. The music had stopped by that point. I couldn't chase. And the other kid's hitting me and kicking me while I'm rolling with the first kid. My 10 minutes are up. I'm screaming, I'm sweating, <laughs> and I go back to the bar. There's no trick there. I forgot how far I, I go to the back to the bar. Mother Chris, and he's looking at me with this look on his face, and he's like, what the hell? And he showed me, uh, the next day he showed me the headlines. That was the year that there was this big pedophile scandal about touching kids and TV stars or something. I was some big, oh, it was wow. the news. That was all the news. And here I am rolling around with these kids, pulling their underground pants, and just not, and the audience, I just looked at the front row and these guys were stoic looking at me like, who is this Yank and what has just happened? And I, I've never bombed so hard in my life. I was, but you know what? I went and had a pint with Chris and we laughed our asses off later, but I did bomb. And that's happened a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, as you, <laughs> you well, bombing is a skill. And again. You can get good at it. And again, that was at a magic convention. And yeah. I always put that, or a magic event for magicians, I always put that in a different category. And I always considered that my experimental laboratory. Because I would go crazy at some of these conventions with a premise I thought of and a gag. Get Matt King, get John Carney. Here, you get under the table. Put on this robot suit. Let's make like this puppet, this Di Vernon puppet that Mike has. I commissioned that. I had a Max Maven, a, a Ed Marlowe. And a uh, Di Vernon puppet made. We did a pup marionette show with inappropriate you know, dialogue and a video we made. Just crazy stuff, you know. And if it bombs, we'd laugh about it afterwards. And if it goes well, all the better, you know. But that's where great stuff would come out of and turn into other. I mean, Misto was uh, just a lark uh, that John, I said, I want to do an interview show. Come on as some crazy character. So he had this character he built. And the first time he did it was just we he improvised this thing, Mister. Just before he walked on stage, should I be like this? Hello there, or should I be like this, maybe Bambi? I go, I don't know, pick one. And we started the show, and he came out and he had this fully formed, hilarious Misto character, and it was like, where did this come from? And people were in stitches. So, oh, and it went from there, and he turned it into this great character. And, but that's what I love about magic conventions because you have the freedom to experiment. Yeah. And you learn where the line is. You cross the line. You get smacked. You go back. You know. But uh, 
So I never took anything that happened at Magic Convention too, too much to heart. If somebody yeah. praised me a lot, I take it with a grain of salt. If somebody criticized me a lot, I take it with a grain of salt. It's the bubble of the Magic Convention. It's not real. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's an insight that you can only have from actually working for real people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You can tell when people work for real people and when they don't. And there's nothing wrong, you know, with not working for real people. I say that, I guess I don't mean it, because I think magic is meant for real people. Yeah. There's an aspect of magic that's meant for showing your friends and the appreciation you get for a job well done or a clever idea. But we all know tricks that you go, that would not survive outside the bubble. I see lots of that inside the bubble stuff. You go to a skating competitions, or not skating's not a good example. What's a good example? Any in, in any subculture mm-hmm. has their own galas and competitions yep. and stuff. All these wild and crazy forms of weird entertainment or gymnastics or dance or circus acts or whatever it is. And they all have their esoteric things that mean something inside the bubble, but you never see it go outside the bubble because it would die on the vine. It wouldn't work. There's no commercial value in it, you know. Yeah. Yet, you know, until somebody figures it out. But magic's like that, too. We reward in competitions these acts or these ideas and stuff inside the bubble. But in reality, you get outside for real people and it doesn't, they don't have the same context that we do for what they just saw. It's too insider or something like that. But every once in a while, you know, rules are meant to be, I don't think there's any rules really. But that's what I tell when I do a lecture. I go, I'm no expert on anything. I expect. The best thing you could do is every assertion that I happen to make during this lecture, say to yourself, I doubt it. <laughs> and then you're, the ones who do that the most are probably going to be the most successful. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I've seen lectures where guys are laying down the law. Yeah. The right way and the wrong way to do things. And I'm like, uh, I don't want to be that guy because I know that everything's conditional. It's the guys who break the rules who succeed, you know. Or they can figure out, they can look at and figure out where the truth is in the rule and where the chaff is. They'll figure it out on their own, yeah. Yeah. This is uh, jumping to kind of a different area, but you worked at Magic Masters. Yeah. Which, I don't know if many of the listeners are familiar with Magic Masters. It hasn't been around for a while, but it was like a really nice, cool magic show i mean would you could do a better job describing it <laughs> magic masters uh, ken fletcher was a salesman and he loved magic and he was the first guy to sell i mean he was the like old school real salesman he knew all about how like, to sell things he was a genius at it he was put in jail in south america because he was the first guy to go down there and start a crew up and sell magazine subscriptions door to door back when it was a thing in america there was nothing as there was nothing like that in South America, but he kind of pioneered it down there, trained troops of people to go out and sell, and uh, but he got in legal trouble because he was making too much money and not paying off <laughs> the right politicians or something like that, you know. Yeah. But anyway, that was his background. But he always loved magic, so he had this concept of Houdini's private library. Imagine a mahogany paneled study with antiquarian bookcases filled with rare magic books and magic items just like the room we're sitting in. Yep. Mike Caveney's magic library here with the posters, 
and pictures of great magicians, portraits. I mean, this is the this is what he imagined when he and little uh, curios, a wonderful example, you know, magic wands, right? This is what Ken Fletcher wanted to build, but turned into a magic shop. Yeah. So he did, and he spent. A, but and the way he did that was he he got a little space in the uh, Hilton Hotel in Atlanta, and it was just a crappy magic store. And the way he got the spark of the idea is he noticed that the conventioneers, the businessmen, the guy with money, would go over and every once in a while he'd have a turned item or a brass item that was kind of expensive. And that's where they would hover around those and look, how much is this? What does this do? And they wouldn't look at the plastic stuff or the card decks or anything like that. So he built a nice little case and he put some velvet down and he took that coin box, nickel and dime trick made out of brass. He'd polish it up. He put a little pin light on it and double the price and put a little handwritten co uh, calligraphy price on it, you know, mm -hmm. with gold edges around the little card that has the price on it. And he sold twice as many. And then he had the epiphany. So he goes, I need a jewel box magic shop like that. So he worked towards that. He kept building magic shops and hotel lobbies around Atlanta. But he had this concept drawn up by an artist, and it was this mahogany panel. Da -da. And he finally found a space in Washington, D.C. at the Marriott Marquis, uh, right next to the White House. And they had a high-end retail space, you know, next to the Gucci store and between the, uh, you know, the high-end leather store and so forth. And it was this beautiful shop. He had it built there. My friend called me, my friend John uh, Eakin, great Baltimore magician at the time. He said, I got a job. We were both doing dinner theaters and both struggling. He goes, you have to come to New Orleans. The sky's starting a chain of magic shops. And uh, he pays 300 bucks a week. And, uh, you know, you're going to be, a, you can, you work your way up to manager and then you get a, and then there's commission after that on your sales. And John had drank the Kool-Aid because yeah. he was struggling like me. And you, you hear these pitches like Amway, you know, yeah, yeah. you will be your own manager, your own boss. You have people under you and da, da, da. I go, John, why would I do that? He goes, he pays dental. I go, I'm there. <laughs> I hung up. I quit my job that night. And I, the guy had it. Ken Fletcher got it. He sold me. I mean, he, that's, that night he sold me on the phone. Half hour conversation. And Marsh says, okay, I don't know. <clears throat> I flew to New Orleans. They trained me to do the demonstrations, to do the pitch. It's a pitch act. After two days, I became the trainer because <laughs> he was recruiting. He was building two shops in New Orleans. So, and he showed me the concept. This is what I'm going for in Baltimore, or in Washington D.C. This is what we're building up there. So, I worked for him down there in New Orleans and Atlanta, and learned the pitch, and and uh, and it was really well written. It was like a funnel. You get people in with the magic, and it all funnels down to selling them a raccoon. For twenty-five or thirty-five bucks, because that's what everybody. For every magic trick we sold, we sold ten raccoons, and he had the corner on the market, and he had a little sweatshop in Stone Mountain, Georgia, where these five ladies would come in, and ones at the spring station, ones at the fur station. They got pelts from France because they eat rabbit like chicken over there, rabbit fur. Ones at the felt station for the ears, ones at the nose station for the little leather nose, and ones at the gluing the eye station. And they come in and they pick up their conversation. They clock in. They stand around this giant bin in the middle of the room. And they go, well, she told me her trailer is going to be hauled off because that bum came back and he had a corridor, you know, whatever. And they're making raccoons all day long filling yeah. this bin, throwing them in the middle. 
and he's and then he's emptying that bin as fast as he can with his magic shops. You know, it was quite a business. And I learned the raccoon. And uh, because you're on commission, the more you sell, the more you make it. So you get really good at the raccoon real quick. You're motivated because you know that's the money maker. But you also sell magic. And he's got a little system for you show him this trick, you show him another trick, you show him the third trick, you buy all three, it's a package deal. You add this book, then it's a bigger package deal. The more you buy, the more you save. And he knew how to do it. And he taught me a lot about sales and salesmanship and how to ask for the sale and the game and the dance and all that. Very valuable lessons, how to listen to what they say and counter and all that. My grandfather was a uh, sales executive at NCR in, Washington, in, uh, in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So I used to listen to him talk about being a salesman. And I mm. thought, that's what a cool person. And I was fascinated by the whole, because it's like magic. It's all psychological. You know, it's uh, you take them through a maze, you know, and it's a dance. And they do what they're expected. If you do what you're expected to do, they will do what they're expected to do. And at the end, when you ask for the sale, most important thing to say is like, <clears throat> So would you like one of those? And then you shut up. And then the rule is the first person to speak loses. Yep. Right? So I had to learn that lesson. And I apply a lot of those lessons I learned in magic, you know, about communicating with people and getting them to do what they don't want to do necessarily or convincing them that it's something they do want. But that was, I loved it. I loved it because it was all that was in my wheelhouse. It was magic. It was learning sales. It was exciting, you know. There was money to be made. So I loved it. I was there almost three years. And then we built that shop in Washington. And then there's a private room that you go into to learn the magic. And it was very, I want to go back in that room. Well, you have to buy something to go back in that room. Because when you open the door, everybody else saw there's a big oak table. And then these portraits of the great magicians, Blackstone and Houdini and Thurston and Keller, all staring at the table, you know. And then you kind of close the door and nobody else is allowed to see. Well, you teach him how to do Sven Kelly deck or something, you know. <laughs> so that was Magic Masters, yeah. I loved it. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, Ken was an interesting guy, very interesting guy. And uh, a lot of people came through there. The first time I saw the raccoon was a guy named Jeff Justice. He was at the magic convention scene in the late 70s and early 80s. He was a, com a comedy magician, and he did this original raccoon. I'd never seen anybody. And he sold raccoons at all the conventions. I bought one when I was 17. It sat in my drawer. I didn't know how to use it. But he had a very funny routine with it. And then... Uh, then I, I learned that he had worked for Ken early on. And so that raccoon became a part of my act. Mm -hmm. And Milt Larson called me one day and said, we're doing a show called Magician's Favorite Magicians, hosted by Harry Anderson. Mike Caveney was part of that. There he is sitting over there. And, uh, and he goes, do you want to be in it? We, we want you to do something in the audience. What would you do? And I go, uh, and I just made up this routine out of panic on the phone with Milt at the mo in the moment. I go, how about if uh, somebody picks a card and that goes on the lady's purse and they fly out and the two guys are holding a coat and that and the raccoon jumps out of his cage and grabs the card. And, okay, you're hired for the show. Go, oh, shit, now I got to do How am I going to do this? The collector's Workshop built the raccoon launcher for me. I still use the same one. I practiced the routine at the Magic Castle for a whole week, yelling, lost my voice. Carney helped me figure it out. When I got to the studio, I had no voice. And they had a girl, a nurse, with a syringe with cortisone in it, ready to stick it in my neck if I couldn't. So they had, we did it twice. And I would, if you ever see the tape, I'm croaking like, it was weird energy, <laughs> but it worked. And, and I've been doing that trick ever since. Now I do it with four kids. And it's perfect for the circus because it's a wild animal act. Yeah. 
How much new material are you generating? Generating? That's yeah. A, no, I don't generate nothing. Uh, the the um, what's the word then? Huh? What's the word then? I don't. Uh, I don't have much new stuff. Uh, the when I started working Disney Cruise Line, I saw that my little corporate club act was not going to make it mm-hmm. if I wanted to continue doing those, and I did want to continue because I was having fun for those big family audiences. So I saw that I need to put some stuff together. So it was really hard, but I put together eventually put together some routines just for the ship, and that was really fun. Uh, and I was very gratifying, you know, because. I have so many creative friends. Ike and John Carney and Matt King always coming up with new commercial, solid stuff, clever. I was like, I don't got nothing like that. I'm just doing the five tricks I've been doing since I was a teenager, just coasting on those, you know. So I kind of came up finally. It was a really hard process for me. What did it look like? <clears throat> what? The coming up with the new. It looked like me walking around Walmart a lot. <laughs> Going, maybe I could use this. I don't know. Maybe use that. And and then I had an epiphany and somebody gave me an idea. I just, it's a lot of phone calls. I have a friend, John Feely in England, who goes, trust me, you don't want that many people on stage. I had this whole committee thing. Yeah. I go, he knows what he's talking about. Very experienced. Then I had a friend, uh, Nevin Cody in Ireland. I said, well, you know, that sounds like this. You gotta, what if you put these two things together? And it was like a lightning bolt. So it was other people. So I guess it wasn't me alone. I mean, it was other people chipping in. I'm lucky enough to have a lot of friends. Yeah. And that's the mind trust that's out there in magic. You were yeah. collaborating. Collaborating. That's yeah. the word. I don't think that there's enough of that Yeah. In, in magic. I think it's, for the most part, from my experience and what I've seen in the bubble, yeah. is it's very insular and petty. And it's like, this is my uh, thing, and you, yeah, can, you can't it, have it. It can be, it. yeah. I've realized that uh, there's a huge world of people out there who've never seen any magician, let alone your magic versus that guy's trick. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all meaningless, you know, really, in the end. So it doesn't matter. And uh, But, yeah... There's enough to go around for everybody. You don't need to be petty about this stuff. Unless you just plan on staying in the war- bubble of magic and worry about what other magicians think, then you're in trouble. Yeah. But no, yeah, you're right. It's collaboration. Yeah. So guys gave me some great ideas and I just ran with it. And uh, and it evolved into some big fun routines. And then when I got the circus show, some of the things I came up uh, with on the ship were a perfect fit for the circus. and. Yeah. How did the circus show come about? Or how did your... your Well, uh, when Simon Painter, uh, Mark uh, Mark Kalin recommended me for the Illusionist tour in Australia about four years ago. And when I had the meeting with the producer, Simon Painter, it was in Las Vegas. He was going on about some other great idea he had. He, uh, some retro circus with giant full-size puppet elephants and I was like this guy's nuts I don't know if I want to get involved he just sounds like a bullshit artist you know yeah but it stuck in my mind well then the then the illusionist happened I go oh well, that's a real thing I mean look at the franchise he's built you know and and he had a, a bunch of other shows he was putting out and then for some reason in the back of my mind when he said I want to do a circus I was like that circus is going to need a ringmaster and that just stuck in the back of my mind. So they called me and they said, 
do you want to be the ringmaster? I'm the first guy they offered it to. I said, yes, because it had, I'd been thinking about it, actually. I knew that it was kind of coming up the pike. So that was great. And, uh, and I said, the first thing I thought of was, I put the phone down, and I said, yes, now what am I going to do as the ringmaster? I need a bullwhip. For some reason, that popped into my mind. <laughs> I want a bullwhip on my because that's the the old school ringmasters always had a bullwhip, right? Yeah. And uh, I go, that that means I need to have a comedy bullwhip act. You know, I need to do something. And I became obsessed with bullwhip, and I need to do something with a bullwhip. But nobody, I don't know anybody's out there doing a comedy, funny. So many funny things you can do with a bullwhip with magic yeah. involved. And I go, I need this. Find somebody to teach me how to do this so I don't kill myself. And I ordered this $1,500 bullwhip made of kangaroo skin. It was the kind you want, you know. Yeah. And then I looked online. There's the Bullwhip Artistry Studio, the only one in the world for teaching actors and stuntmen and people how to do the bullwhip. And this guy used to have a show in Las Vegas, and he's taught all the Orlando, uh, Indiana Jones guys how to crack bullwhips for years. And Wow. Where am I going to have to travel to to study with this guy 10 miles from my home in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Next no town way. over is Jamestown, Ohio. He has a big barn there, the Bullwhip Artistry Institute. His family is friends with my family in Greene County because they're all farmers. And, <clears throat> and, you know, my cousin's like, oh, yeah, Gary Deere. Yeah, he's yeah, a Bullwhip guy. I go, I didn't know. How did I not know this? You know, No one told me? You no know, one told me. So he taught me how to crack the Bullwhip, and I put together a little comedy routine that I did in the circus, and that was fun. I did the raccoon, and and, and Mike built this beautiful uh, tip-over trunk for the history conference, and then we incorporated that into our sideshow. Oh, wow. So there's a little magic and a little bit of Mike in there. And then Mike wrote the script. Uh, there's a guy named Chris Berry, who's the Mike Caveney of Circus World. He's a historian and poster collector, and he wrote a lot of things for the circus. Mm -hmm. And Mike added a lot of stuff, and... Uh, I threw a few things in there, and that, that was a collaboration. To, and, then, and then I went and rehearsed with them, and it was really hard work. And I had to do memorized lines, which is completely against character. You know, me. Yeah. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, and then I had to do very, very physical. And I'm not physical. At, I mean, I'm not, I never went to a gym in my life. So I was like limping around. I was the old guy, all these 20 something circus artists, you know. And, but uh, the, girls in the cast taught me some yoga and some stretches and stuff and so I got you know I was able to get through the show without painkillers and now I've been doing it a year and a half and I just love it we're on a hiatus now but we're going to pick up again in uh, December in London for oh, three weeks wow and then hopefully that'll be a jumping off point for European tour so hopefully it'll keep going that's amazing yeah so I have a couple things, uh, just a couple final questions, and I have two stories that were requested. Uh, one is the Rocky Raccoon pizza story. Yep, Homer. Yep, Homer requested <laughs> both of these. Oh boy. Well, that was, uh, there's not much to that story other than I got punked really hard by Homer. <laughs> Because at, at the Magi Fest, for years, what the guys would do is, after the show was over, at the Masonic Temple Theater, they'd all go back to the hotel, and everybody would order pizzas, because they're starving. And I would hang out by the lobby and cold call the pizzas. You know, I'd buy, i go, 
they'd walk in the pizza up to the front desk and I would in, I would intercept the pizza before they got to the front <laughs> desk and I'd go hey yeah is that the one with uh, what did we order on that and the guy goes pepperoni I go yeah pepperoni for uh, now did they say 20 uh, and I, you know, and whatever. And they go two thirty five. Yes. And I just pay the guy or whatever. And we would sit down and eat the pizza. And there's guys all over the hotel going, what fucking Williamson? Cause the pizza <laughs> wouldn't come for two hours. They're up there starving, waiting. Yeah. And it just became a thing that I would do every year. Cause, and we would laugh and we'd just eat everybody's pizza. And, and that, <laughs> I did that every year. And, <laughs> and, uh, and this pizza guy comes in. He's got the thing, and I, and he's looking at the thing. And I go, uh, "Is that the?" Yeah. And I pay for the pizza, and I take it over, and I'm laughing. Come on, guys, pizza! I open it up, and there's no pizza. It's a raccoon inside. <laughs> so Homer had punked me. He said, "I think he had his girlfriend." That was the pizza girl. You know? <laughs> and then he's over behind a bush laughing or something. They they all punked me. I didn't think that was that funny, but Homer apparently thought it was funny. <laughs> That's his big victory. Well done, Homer. Well played. He still revels in that, huh? That's sad. Clearly, yeah. That's sad. Mm-hmm. Let it go, Homer. <laughs> and then the other one is the Copperfield, Siegfried, and Roy story. Oh, God. It's not that good a story. I was... Uh, Jazz it up. <laughs> I walked into a hospitality suite in the Magi Fest, after, no, at the Pittsburgh IBM in 1981 after winning the Gold Cups. Congrats. First ever year. You still they, hold on to that? They give the Gold Cups. <laughs> I have the Gold Cups. They gave them to me without etching my name in the plate, so there's just a blank plate. That's really And the Gold Cups, so I can't prove that I actually won them. There's no proof that I earned it. It's just these Gold Cups in this case that Doty made. And they never sent the plate off to be etched in my name. So, And the only reason I won that competition was because Michael Amar was one of the judges. And he was my buddy. So I'm sure that had something to do with it. it was a fix was in. Anyway, uh, Bill Larson was in there. Ooh. In the co- they had me do my act for everybody. It was my little coming out party for all the power brokers. And mm-hmm. Joe Stevens was in the room. Why don't you come work my next seminar, Desert Seminar? That was 1981. The next one would be 1982. Thank you, Mr. Stevens. And uh, so I was all excited. And springtime comes around, and I borrow $400 from my grandpa, jump in a rental car with Marsha, and we drive to Las Vegas from Ohio, and I get to the Frontier Hotel, walk up to Joe Stevens. I'm here. And he goes, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) You hired me for the... I did. I don't remember asking. I wasn't on the bill. It was Mike Amar, Hebahaba Al, Tamariz, Ascanio, Paul Gertner, and all right, we'll let you do, you know, David Williamson from Ellis Springs, Ohio, whatever. So I followed Mike around. I was horrible. And uh, they go, oh, there's one more performance after we've done all the rooms. It's Siegfried and Roy in their private suite. They don't come down and sit amongst the registrants. You know, we have to go to them. And the way I tell the story is here's the way I perceived it, you know, this wall opens up in this casino behind these bushes that didn't exist before. You know, it's like a golden door, you know, you go through, there's this long hallway with uh, torches, with human hands <laughs> holding torches all along the hallway. And they were actual living people. Cause one of them had a watch and I saw it turn as you, you know, anyway, you walk down, there's another 
special golden elevator and two tigers, white tigers chained to the walls. You know. But it, that's what it felt like anyway. It would go in this special area. We go up this special private elevator. When the doors opened, there's Siegfried and Roy sitting in their leopard jammies on this throne, basically up on a little stage in these rattan thrones with macaws and waterfalls and, you know, and elephants and I don't know, but a bald man in a diaper serving grapes chained to the wall. You know, it's just this weird, it was this weird tableau of these guys, this power pose. Yeah. And over here is David Copperfield on the fireplace wearing a full-length meat coat. That I remember distinctly. But his sleeves were hanging loose. He was, where it just wore it on his shoulders. He didn't put his arms in the sleeves. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Each sleeve cost as much as my parents' house. And he didn't even use them. He's like, <laughs> I own these homes, but I don't live in them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And basically, it's the most, when that door opened, it's as if God said, what's the most intimidating thing we can put in front of this farm kid from Ohio? You know, so I basically peed my pants as soon as the door opened. You know what I mean? It's like, how am I supposed to funk? And Tamaris didn't care. He's in dirty jeans and his slouch hat. You know, he's like, yeah. I don't care. If it's the Pope, I don't care. I'll do the same tricks. <laughs> these guys went in and fooled the shit out of these guys. And then it was my turn. And I was like, Shaking like a leaf and sweating and coins were falling in my hands. It was completely horrible. And I got, there's nothing I can do that's going to fool these guys. And then I remembered that the night before or the week before or something, David Copperfield had done Cigarette Through Quarter on Johnny Carson show. And he borrowed the trick quarter from Ed McMahon. But if an ordinary quarter, Nick went, oh, here's one right here, David. Oh, thank you. And he just completely <laughs> stooged it. But it looked great. You know, he put the cigarette through and brought it back and made it vanish at the end. And, so I had a cigarette through quarter in my pocket and I had this move based on Mike Amar had this little move, you know, yeah. switch, but mine was, and I know Mike won't mind me saying this, I think a little better. <laughs> I had a variation, right, that looked sure. perfectly clean because basically what you're doing is pulling it out in slow motion with the quarter on it and it looks, and you can hand it direct, directly at him. But the illusion's perfect and it's all perfectly natural movements, you know, fools everybody sees it. So I borrow a quarter from David Copperfield, right? And I do the Bob Elliott flip switch to switch it for the uh, trick quarter. I put the pencil through the quarter and I look over at David Copperfield and he's not going to give me any satisfaction because I see him like fighting for control of his eyebrow. His eyebrow wants to go up in surprise. Yeah. But he's not going to allow it to because he doesn't want to, get, you know, because he's David Copperfield. Why should he give this, you know, kid... From Ohio, any satisfaction whatsoever that he's been fooled. He's not going to give me nothing. He's not giving it up. I'm like, God damn it. You know, I can't believe he's doing this to me. I was like, I'm going to get him on the next switch because this is the big, the big switch. Yeah. So I pull the pencil out. Perfect illusion, right? Hand him the quarterback. And here, and I could tell just from the look on his face as he's taking the quarterback. So if you were doing the linking rings and you saw a professional magician in the front row, You'd hand him the key ring. Yeah. Right? Go, sir, you examine that, make sure it's solid. And he'd kind of wink at you as he hands it back. Looks good to me because he's helping you out, right? Yeah. Instant stooge, solidarity, brotherhood. That's the attitude with which he received the quarter. Mm -hmm. Because the switch was too good. He didn't, he assumed it's the, yeah. right? He takes it back and he gives me this nod and this kind of little almost half wink. Like, don't worry. Yeah. I'm not going to let him know that it's you're handing me back the trick quarter. So I hand it to him. He accepts it. 
And I, this is where I, I had the presence of mind not to stare at him. I turned. And I would say I turned 40%, right? Yep. To put the pencil away, to nod and somebody say something. And then I kind of turned my head a little bit and looked back. And that's when my life changed because from that moment on, I was a, a man, you know. Because <laughs> that's when I saw David Copperfield, Prince of Magicians. Turned the quarter over, and both eyebrows were like on strings. They went boing like this. It was like full, a double take, like right out of a cartoon. He went, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> it was great. So I strode, I slapped the guy in the diaper, and I kicked the tiger in the face and strode out a man. That's how I tell the story. Yeah. How much of that is true, I don't even remember. But I do remember doing that trick for him. And he, I, I've turned into an epic conquest in, in my mind. I think I might have fooled him. I'm not sure. It was a good moment. Yeah. I've had only a couple moments like that. Yeah. The other one was the first time I did Cards Across at FISM. Steinmeier, Caveney, Bill Hurst, Stan Allen in the second row with their arms crossed, shaking their heads because I'm dancing around stage, <laughs> melee, fighting with people. I was like, what an idiot. And then I start counting them off. I go, okay, the trick didn't work. You each still have 10 cards. You 10 gentlemen, leave the stage. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys walk off the stage. As the 13 guys are walking off the other side of the stage, I turn 40% and I see Caveney and Steinmeier, Stan Allen, Bill Hurst go, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Completely fooled him. That was the other high point in my life. And so I've had two moments. That's it. That's all you need. That's all you need. That'll do me. Um... Just a, a lightning round, couple quick questions to finish. Mike, do you have anything to add? No? He's a silent. I've never heard him not speak. <laughs> Look at this. Um, favorite film? The Producers. That's easy. Favorite uh, comedy special? I don't consume comedians okay. in album or special form. I don't think. Okay. I don't, I don't like re-listen to comedy specials. Probably Steve Martin's uh, concerts or Richard Pryor when I his first or Carlin. Mm -hmm. Those are those are my three top comedians back when I was growing up. Okay. Uh, favorite non-magic book? I love Confederacy of Dunces. Okay. And uh, I Harry Anderson uh, gave me a copy of Geek Love. Oh, I'm not, I don't know that one. Oh, it's creepy. <laughs> okay. Um, and then favorite magic book? Ooh. I'm going to go back to my sentimental favorite, which is uh, Henry Hayes, Amateur Magician's Handbook. Amazing. I keep extra copies around for when I meet a young magician who I perceive as, you know, needs it. Yeah. And then the last question, what was the experience that you had where you were just totally bamboozled, completely and utterly astonished, like you were broken? Oh, I've had a few of those. I've had a few of those. Uh, a couple of memorable ones. I'll just quickly rattle off. One was Roger Klaus making two dice disappear at the table. Shook two dice in his hand. Toss them out. Wasn't coming up. I kept naming a number. He said, name a number two. And then I was a teenager. He wasn't rolling the right numbers. And you could hear him rattling in his hand. He'd throw them out and... He goes, the surface is no good. I need a close-up matter. Like, I have one in my room. Well, go get it. I go up to the 30th floor. It took me 10 minutes to get back to the table. And the whole time, I'm wondering, how the hell? Why does he need a close-up? Is it friction? Or is it, I don't know what's going on. 
And I come back with a close-up mat, and I go, here's the close-up mat. And he goes, what's that for? I go, the dice. He goes, oh, oh, yeah. And he picks <laughs> up the dice, he rattles them, he opens his hand, and they're gone. They've completely vanished, so it's both sides of his hand, completely gone. And I almost literally, I think I fell out of my chair. He absolutely destroyed me. He could make the bones in his knuckles crack. Oh, wow. So he just did a pass, and he cracked his knuckles. But he would keep them in his hand, he'd crack his knuckles, too, to condition you to that sound. Sound yeah. like dice. So when he did the pass, but the fact that he sent me after the close-up mat is why I'm still talking about it today. He could have just vanished him and it's a cute trick. Yeah. But that journey that he sent me on is why I'm still talking about it today and why I fell out of my chair. And that's was Roger Klaus. That's all you need to know about Roger Klaus. He was evil. <laughs> yeah. The extra mile. He would. And uh, the other one was Del Rey. Same with dice. Dice cup stacking. He... And I'm sitting at the table. He's stacking these dice. Lift up the cup. I lift it up. Dice are gone. Again, falling out of the chair. John Carney bends a spoon in half. Then he snaps his fingers and it jumped, apparently, boom, straightened up right in front of me. He used a little misdirection, straightened out what I would look at some. But he's mastered misdirection and naturalness. And as a young man, I'd never seen anything like that. In my mind, that spoon straightened out. Almost fell out of my chair. And then the last one, was FISM. You were there in Lausanne, Switzerland. The first time I saw Rene Levon doing the breadcrumbs. 1,500 magicians, almost in tears, cheering. Each phase got stronger and stronger. Never seen anything like it. Wow. And that was his coming out party for the second phase of his life. That, that FISM is when he came back into the world of magic, you know, after being... Uh, no. But that was, that was amazing. Were you on that same close-up show? No, this was his, I think it was his one-man show or lecture when he was doing the breadcrumbs. But I was on the close-up show at that FISM, yeah. Did you climb into a dumpster and come out with uh, a carpet scrap for your close-up pad? I think I did, yeah. It might have happened. <laughs> I never remember a dumpster being involved. Well, thank you so much. This thank has you. been amazing. I really appreciate it, and it's been a pleasure and an honor. Oh, uh, pl- Yeah, right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to MagicalThinkingPodcast.com to hear more episodes and discover new ways to support the show. Check out ArtOfMagic.com to learn magic and cardistry, and visit ArtOfPlay.com for your playing card, board game, and whimsical interior decorating needs. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me directly at me at ElliotTerrell.com. That's M-E at E-L-L-I-O-T-T. T-E-R-R-A-L dot com. And I'll be happy to respond to any questions or comments you may have. Before you forget, head into your podcast app and leave a rating and a review for Magical Thinking. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.